The year is 1964. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. And this is My Marvelous Year. My Marvelous Year. I'm Dave, the comic book expert. Alongside Zach, the comic book newbie, we'll be going through each year of Marvel Comics, year by year, talking about 10 stories at a time. Today we're going to be covering 1964, Part 2. So if you haven't listened to Part 1 yet of our the comics we've discussed in 1964, we recommend going back mm-hmm. and doing so. Otherwise, we're going to be diving in this year to some of the better stuff that Marvel was publishing in 1964, including Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, and Doctor Strange. All right, let's get into it. The first comic we're going to talk about today is Fantastic Four, number 25. That's right. All right, so this issue starts out with Reed Richards running up to the thing, telling him that he's he's stumbled across a new formula. He needs him to drink it to revert him back to Ben Grimm, human form, and he doesn't know if he'll ever be able to make it again because he accidentally made this and he doesn't know how he did and... It's totally absurd. <laughs> it the thing smashes it out of Reed Richards' hands uh, and says, "Like I, I, I don't need that. Alicia loves me the way I am, and who knows if she'll still like me with human flesh." <laughs> Basically, yeah, we, we've talked a bunch about Ben's transformation and yeah. both, both literal and emotional as far mm-hmm. as how he deals with being the thing. And here we see it kind of come. I think this is like the fullest progression we've seen where he's actively hostile towards the idea of changing back to only being Ben Grimm. Yeah, yeah. It, and he, he does say, though, he's like, he tells Reed to go back to his lab and try to make a formula that will let him switch back and forth at will. Yeah. <laughs> the thing the thing is really demanding of Reed as a scientist at times. Like, the last time he brought him a, a formula to change back, he goes, forget about this. Go cure blindness instead. Like, he... I think he thinks that Reed just needs to, if Reed just works at it, he'll be able to do do all these things he demands. Well, and Reed is rightfully upset here, I think. Like, he's really mad at Ben, and it it gives a good dynamic of, like, they are friends, and they do, they can have these sort of big explosive fights, Mm -hmm. Um, but Reed is furious. I think, like, kind of the maddest we've seen him, because, again, like, he accidentally created this one somehow, so he's like, he just doesn't, and Reed being the scientist, like, it must drive him up a wall that he can't he can't replicate it you know Mm -hmm. so for ben to just throw it on the ground is super frustrating yeah yeah this seems like the year that reed richards becomes a real yeah oh well i I can't swear on this podcast so uh i I think we can call reed oh all right well for for 1964 i'm fine with that speak speaking of which my wife sometimes has told me, like, she's like, sometimes, like, the phrases you use sound so weird, and they're, like, so not like you. Oh, and yeah? It's like, and I told her, I was like, it's because I can't swear. And I'm, like, I'm holding back, like, not swearing on this show. So, like, I say things like, who boy? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I said that at one point in the last episode. I said, oh, boy. And she was like, that, that's weird. Who boy? Who is that? Like, <laughs> and I was like, it's because I can't, I don't swear on this show. Yeah, so. man. 
We're like old-timey grandmas. <laughs> it's like the, the only time I, I used, I think I called Rita jackass, and it was like, I don't use the word jackass. Like, <laughs> that, is, that is me trying to sound like, uh, use a harsh word when I can't swear. Reed, Reed is an ass. We can say okay. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this year, like Reed, I feel like he has been shown as kind of a jerk, but not intentionally, right? Like the way that Stanley accidentally just makes him a chauvinist <laughs> at times. But I think this is the year where they start kind of leaning into his superiority and his, um, yeah, his his pride over the rest of the Fantastic Four, just like his, yeah, self righteousness. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Self righteousness, because there's a few issues here where like there there's something happens and he he starts lecturing people, he stomps off, and he's in the wrong, right? Like he's definitely the jerk of the situation. It's clear that that's how he's being characterized as kind of the the you know the self righteous gas bag. Yeah, it's definitely when people talk about '60s Reed Richards. Uh, yeah. being deeply flawed, <laughs> yeah. at, you know, at, at the kindest of ways of describing it. Um, this is the year where we really see that come to fruition in a number of ways, but like in and how he interacts with others in how he talks to Sue, I think especially we'll have some, I'm sure, yeah. we'll, I'm sure we'll have some highlights or lowlights to talk about there. Um, but it's, it's not a great year for you, but at the same time, like throughout this issue, he's very sympathetic because he is working so hard to help his friend, that he's actually going to get very, very sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so Alicia Masters comes in, and she she comes in uh, carrying a newspaper, which clearly she can't read, and she asks someone to read it to her because she she heard, you know, the, the newsboy talking, like, extra, extra, there's some something big going on. Yeah. <laughs> Reed, Reed's still in a bad mood, and he snaps at Alicia. I could have told you what it was, Alicia. The news just came in over the radio. They, they show him, like, Thanks, yelling Reed. at her. Good grief. Yeah. Which is funny because then at that, when he does that, Ben like snaps back at him. He goes, look, why don't you go inside and polish a test tube or something? Yeah. <laughs> um, so the paper, the paper is a news story about how the Hulk left the Avengers, which we have seen and like Avengers two or three, um, they had a fight and falling out and he was gone. So it cuts to New Mexico where the Hulk is hitchhiking <laughs> basically. And the Hulk is starting to look very hulky. Right, he's he's big, he's green, he looks oversized. Um, I think he's really starting. He's, he's not quite as big as he's going to become. He's not even close to as big as he becomes. But like this looks like the Hulk. Yeah, I did make a note on just on the cover that they there's a big shot of him fighting the thing, and he is demonstrably larger than yeah, Big yeah. Bang Grim here. So like, yeah, you're right. He's he's grown <laughs> from where he was when we started, and I think it works. Uh, he also calls himself Bob Banner. Which oh yeah, a reoccurring thing of Stanley forgetting which alliteration he used for different characters multiple times throughout this issue too. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the Hulk is—he's hitchhiking and he's thinking about how mad he is that the Avengers kicked him out, and he's going to go to New York City to get his revenge on the Avengers. The Avengers are actually in New Mexico looking for the Hulk. They're flying around looking for him, and there's a shot of the two of them like just just passing each other, missing each other without without bumping into each other. Uh, back in New York City, Reed has collapsed uh, all of a sudden for no reason. He just is exhausted and he's collapsed to the ground. The Fantastic Four put him in the, what is their jet called? Fantastic Car? Fantastic Car. I knew it was, I knew it had the word Fantastic. You knew it was awesome? <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
the Fantastic Four put him in the Fantastic Car, and they go to drive him across town. But the Hulk has shown up in New York City. I think he's just leapt across the country with his giant, like, mile-long leaps. Mm -hmm. And he is rampaging around New York City looking for the Avengers, who are in New Mexico looking for him. So the, the torch flies out of the car, goes to stop the Hulk, and is, like, immediately <laughs> knocked unconscious and flames off. Yeah, torch doesn't fare particularly well <laughs> against the Hulk, which is kind of a recurring theme throughout this issue. The Fantastic Four as a whole... They get their butts kicked. Yeah, and they, I mean, the Torch can't do anything against him because he throws fire, fire at him and it just kind of annoys him. I don't necessarily love the action sequences throughout this. Um, I don't know that Kirby, like Kirby can be very inventive with action and these aren't necessarily mm -hmm. the craziest. But like one thing they do highlight is Hulk's fighting intelligence. Yeah. He's not a dumb brute. Like he sees the torch and he tears out a fire hydrant or something. You know, it's like he, he has strategy. I actually, I, I thought that was kind of silly. And again, this is a, a reoccurring bit on my part of i judge characters based on future information the hulk being as well spoken as he is felt kind of odd to me like i have a quote you wasted the few precious seconds i allowed you but you won't get that chance again like that doesn't sound like the hulk to me it oscillates so much though honestly yeah. so like if the series i'm reading right now the immortal hulk 2018 mm -hmm. hulk series which is amazing he talks yeah. like that. Like, it just yeah. it oscillates so much throughout Marvel history. Yeah, and I, I don't mean, like, he should just speak in, like, Hulk smash, and mm -hmm. that's all he says. You know, like, he's more than, like, Hodor. But yeah, to have him just, just it, it, he, he talks a little bit just like a generic villain in this, like a James Bond villain, and that just seems, that he, maybe he's just not angry enough. <laughs> so Sue and the Thing take Reed to the Doctor, and he, he tells them to go on without him. And he's kind of phrasing it like he's about to die. He's just like, good luck. If I ever see you again, if I don't see you again, know that I love you. You know, like, for no particular reason, he's just feeling pretty weak. <laughs> well, it is like they know the Hulk's there, too. So it's like it's raising yeah. the, the amplifying the stakes in a yeah. way where it's like life or death. Sue and the Thing go off to fight the Hulk. And this is the first time we've seen that Sue has developed more powers than just turning invisible. Mm -hmm. uh, she has the ability to create force fields, and she can do that around herself, or she can do that around other things. It's a little bit like telekinesis um, from a, not too much of a distance. So she, she tries to, an example of that is, she puts a force field around Johnny Storm, knocked unconscious, in order to protect him. Yeah, it's a good power development for Sue to... Um, you know, when she's protecting her little brother here, because it gives her it gives her a role in the action in a way that mm -hmm. she they have struggled to find for her. I think it's a smart development on Lee and Kirby's part, because otherwise yeah. it's like she can hide and sneak up on people, but she can't do a lot. And and then punch them like a, an average size woman could like. Yeah, right. She, it's I actually well, she has been trained by the world's leading judo expert reed richards so it's <laughs> fair fair point yeah there, so there's a fun moment where she puts a, a force field around johnny storm and the hulk just grabs him like wraps his arm around the force field and johnny storm and just leaps up into the stratosphere mm -hmm. with him which breaks the force field because she can't maintain it at that distance yeah uh and it actually knocks her unconscious from the strain of it yeah and then the hulk like puts the torch down it, it, this is something that marvel villains do a lot is they have someone at their mercy and they say like they either say, oh, it's not fair sport to finish them off now, or I've got better things to worry about. Or a lot of times when the villains actually defeat the heroes, they just end up walking off because they're like, I'll take care of him later. 
it it every time that happens i hate it and it feels totally contrived <laughs> like i think in the hulk's case here he is so singularly motivated to take out the avengers yeah. like the fantastic 4 are just a bump in the road he is not there to take out johnny so yeah yeah he's yeah, like that, that's true i mean i guess i don't expect him to like knock johnny unconscious and then pummel his unconscious body to death he's not mad enough <laughs> like, at him i guess he's yeah. just like, he just kind of tosses him out of the way because it's like you just got in my way yeah that's a good point i, I think that's just a trope that reoccurs a lot that generally gets under yeah. my skin but you're right this is not one of the more egregious um times of that the, the thing in the hulk get into a big battle i you, you said you didn't like the action that much i really liked this part of it i i liked the the two of them fighting because i felt like this was the first time we really saw the hulk the Hulk's strength on full display. Mm-hmm. The thing runs behind a bus and the Hulk just tears the bus in half like it's nothing. Right? Like, I, I feel like before we've seen him, like, break through walls and bend some metal pipes and be able to take a punch hard. But, like, him just taking a bus and ripping it in half with his bare hands. He takes, there's like a 10 or 15 story building that the thing is on top of. And he, he just picks it up out of the ground, rips it out of its foundations and starts shaking it like it's a, a, a sapling. Yeah, I want to walk back my action comment immediately because flipping through this, I wasn't super into the pre-Thing vs. Hulk fight, but the Thing vs. Hulk fight is very fun, yes. And and this is, uh, the Thing's really funny here. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's so good in this, yeah. This this is where I really start, I feel like they really start nailing his characterization. He starts having these really funny one-liners and he has this like this kind of dry exasperated kind of jewish sense of humor i think which the thing is jewish yeah yeah oh yeah that hasn't been established yet i don't think but like that definitely i don't know if they talked about it at all yeah yeah that that comes across like i i feel like that he's the most clearly like and i mean that that makes sense i mean that the two people who are writing him are jewish and they they are steeped in that culture but he definitely kind of has that like a little bit of a sarcastic bent to his thing that yeah, that, it, he's really funny at this point. And well, and we and people nowadays think of like Spider-Man <laughs> as the bantering fighter, but definitely yeah. like I think the thing is better at it earlier mm-hmm. in Marvel yeah. Comics where like the Hulk's just pounding on him, whooping him and he just he won't stop with the, he's yeah. just unrelenting getting up and he has a comeback every single time. It's great. There, there's a fun moment here where Yancey Street actually comes to his rescue. Yeah. You don't see any of them. They hide all their faces for some reason. I don't know why they (laughs) need to protect their identities. But they jump into a truck and, like, plow both the Hulk and the Thing out of town. And I wrote down that the Yancey Streeters say, we're not letting anyone else pulverize our favorite whipping boy. Is their rationale (laughs) for taking out the Hulk. So you get a nice, like, that sort of, um, you know, like, prank war camaraderie. That's yeah, the thing right, in Yancey right. Street. It's a really nice yeah. moment, yeah. It, it's like my favorite running joke so far. So this, this issue ends with Reed is sick, maybe dying in bed. Johnny is hospitalized. Sue is <laughs> Sue is just looking frantic and screaming about everything. And the thing is like defeated at the feet of the Hulk. Yeah. Uh, he, he is unable to uh, be, be victorious against the Hulk. This is going to take us straight into Fantastic Four number 26. It is the two-part story here of the Hulk versus the Fantastic Four. And now, of course, we actually get the Avengers. So this is a mm-hmm. really fun cover. Uh, I love this cover. You get 11 characters on the page. I actually stopped to count. It's all the Fantastic Four, all the Avengers, and the Hulk at the top of a um, unbuilt like construction site, sort of like uh, like Donkey Kong in the video game, you know, like throwing barrels down. Yeah, it looks it looks like a kid's playset. Yeah, yeah. But it's definitely like 
as far as guest stars promised in an, in an mm-hmm. issue go, it's a really nice way of introducing everyone that's going to be in here. Yeah, this is really the like the year of the guest star. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There, the shared universe is is growing, and the cameos are expanding as a result. So yeah. this is Lee and Kirby, inks by George Bell, lettered by Art Simek. Uh, the thing continues fighting the Hulk, and as I think Reed comments or or someone watching comments, you know, it's on sheer courage alone, right? Mm-hmm. So like the thing has taken a whooping at this point. And he kind of, he just keeps on ticking. You can't give up because he knows basically it's up to him to keep the Hulk from hurting anyone innocent is essentially right. the, the, you know, the argument he's making. Reed is still very sick. Um, you know, he's in bed and unable to help. You got Johnny in a hospital bed at this point from his wounds uh, battling the Hulk early on. Johnny has, uh, in, in his hospital bed, they, he has a guy sitting next to him in bed. And he goes, asbestos screens? Oh, it must be the Human Torch. <laughs> and then it later shows that he is, they put him in asbestos pajamas and wrapped him in as, asbestos bandages. I hope Johnny's ready for mesothelioma. They wrap those bandages as best as they can. Oh, my God. <laughs> I saw your face like look like you were about to say something. <laughs> Pause. Oh, my God. I'm cutting that out. <laughs> so, all right. So the nurses have to fight. Uh, stretcho here to get him on the stretcher uh basically because he is so passionately trying to help ben which i <laughs> do appreciate keep, his feverish devotion even it though keeps he happening is where he just is slithering across the ground all like spaghetti like and he he just keeps trying to crawl to the window like he's gonna slither out the window and and there's like three people picking up like his long pile of limbs <laughs> yeah yeah it is a, it's a nice like little sequence of the fantastic four just um, of their heroism coming to the forefront, basically, of just their refusal to give up. This is one of my favorite things in in Marvel, honestly, like when heroes are are so thoroughly beaten, but they, you know, Stanley does this thing of like, but you never give up, you never give up. And it's, you know, it's going to lead to, I think, some of the best Spider-Man stories. And here you get it with Reed first, and then Johnny, who basically gets out of his hospital bed and rushes off to battle without burning his bandages. So as to show that he is still um, both the torch, but also concussed. So so Johnny flies in to help uh, the thing, who is, again, you know, still keeping up the battle against the Hulk. And basically the Hulk, um, you know, he dismisses of them pretty easily. He does a big old Hulk clap with a couple of bricks. And yeah, that's pretty cool. And flings the torch and thing miles away. Yeah. So at this point, the military, who's been kind of like just watching the thing and the Hulk, <laughs> yeah. like it's a, you know, ringside seats for a boxing match. Um, they finally <laughs> intervene. They fire some missiles at the Hulk and they, I think they literally fire like one warhead. Hulk yeah. catches it and throws it into the sky and like yeah, shakes his fist, cool. like try it again, boys. And, <laughs> and that's basically the end of it. They, they do a lot. This is a real Jack Kirby reoccurring bit where he has in any time there's like a panic crowd, which there's a lot of in these issues. There are a lot of people panicked, like looking straight at you like looking straight out of the panel uh, direct directly into the camera so to speak and th- that happens a lot here there's tons of military people yelling or pointing yeah yeah definitely so during the brief separation between the ff and the hulk uh hulk kind of wanders away and he stops a train and hijacks it and we get a real nice panel here of a sad looking hulk driving a train <laughs> which i <laughs> yeah, really it's like very funny. Um, but he's seeking the avengers is what he's doing and finally, he makes it to uh, what is not yet called Avengers Mansion. I don't think it's just Stark's Mansion. And he finds the Avengers. They are they have returned from New Mexico, 
and he gets there to fight. There's a big old Hulk versus Avengers fight, you know, for a handful of pages here in this FF comic. And it ends with Hulk escaping with Rick Jones in tow. And uh, the Wasp follows him because the rest of the Avengers have more or less gotten a whooping. Um, yeah. they're, it's kind of, it's an embarrassing defeat for the Avengers. Like, they're too close together. They're not fighting as a team. You know, it's, again, yeah. it's like, we're real early in the Avengers construction here. This is right. post probably Avengers number four because Captain America's around. Mm-hmm. Um, but they stink. <laughs> they get beat up. Yeah, he, he knocks them out real quick. I, I do like the idea of, like, they're just in a, in a living room. So they just don't have room to spread out and fight. Mm-hmm. And that's why, I mean, good reason to tell yourself. <laughs> right, yeah. So the, the, the Avengers meet up with the Fantastic Four here. I really like, or they meet up with the Thing, I think. And uh, I like uh, the, the Thing's reaction to meeting some of these Avengers. He meets Thor and says, Say, for a guy with long hair, you're okay. You've even got muscles in your voice. It's such a good line. Yeah. It reminded me of um, when the when the Guardians of the Galaxy meet Thor in Infinity War in the uh-huh. MCU, and they're just, like, fawning over him. Like, even Drax is like, what a muscular god. Drax calls him, uh, if he says it's like a, an angel and a pirate had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That reminds yeah. me of the things approach here, which I really appreciate, because, again, for, like, I don't know, maybe I'm overthinking it, for 1964, for a man to compliment another man and his, his muscles, I feel like is a little progressive. A, yeah, a little. maybe. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I, what I, what I like about it is this is something the Avengers are sorely lacking is that they don't respond to each other like in character that much, right? Like, so the thing specifically speaking as the thing to Thor, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Like, the it. I mean, what works about these team things is they're supposed to have these like distinct personalities bouncing off of each other. Right. Well, there's also no one funny on the Avengers roster. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Jane, or not Jane, Janet, Janet. is probably the funniest because I, I think her boy obsession is kind of funny. But, she she uh, has the most quips probably too. Like she takes yeah. things the least dead serious. Yeah. And everyone else just scolds her, which is not fun. Right. They, not don't fun fun. they don't react in yeah. a fun way. So yeah, yeah I agree. Anyway. Like, it's it's nice seeing Ben interact with the characters here. Oh, one, one other little detail is uh, Iron Man wants to tap into the police scanner to find out where the Hulk is. And he has to pull up a little antenna off of his shoulder. <laughs> like there's a little six inch extendable antenna that he yeah. pulls out. Again, just showing that their imagination about t- having to tie Iron Man's abilities to real practical concerns is really holding him back. Well, and it is, it's like, it's kind of funny too, because the way Kirby draws it, you know, there's like a button all of a sudden on his shoulder, which is like yeah. not part of the armor in any other yeah. scene. <laughs> like, you know, it's like it doesn't totally work, but okay, sure. Yeah. He has an antenna, why not? Um, so the Avenger when the Avengers meet the Fantastic Four, they sort of have one of those classic like internal fights, but it's like almost all by accident. Basically, it's just like they don't know how to function as heroes in the same city yet because they haven't had to. You know, so mm-hmm. it's like they're all getting in each other's way. Like Thor tries to throw his hammer and it hits the thing. So it's it's kind of just a mess. And meanwhile, the Hulk is basically playing King Kong with Rick Jones. He carries him up to the top of, again, this like unoccupied, um, unfinished construction site. And basically, as they're trying to free Rick Jones, the Fantastic Four take a shot at things. And this is where we get to kind of like you were mentioning. Reed's kind of trying to give instructions. Yeah. And the Avengers, you know, Reed's used to being able to do this with his team, but the Avengers are composed of, like, all leaders. And, yeah. you know, like, Thor's used to leading his own battles. Ant-Man's used to leading Janet around. Iron Man <laughs> is a leader of, of business. Cap is obviously, like, a born leader. 
And they're all basically like, no, you're not giving us orders. Like, we're not right. really yeah. having that with you, even though the Fantastic Four are, you know, super team number one in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Uh, so the Avengers kind of take over the fight. And the Fantastic Four, they kind of fail. And they kind of get thrown to the wayside. And they really knock the FF out of this Hulk fight. And, on, you know, they try to get the Hulk. And it's honestly, it's like sequences of action, which are kind of fun up on this um unbuilt construction building but basically one, they... one that i want to point out is ant-man ant-man keeps ant-man slash giant man because he i think he goes by giant man more yeah. often these days but he is he just keeps reverting back and forth to ant size and giant size to confuse yeah. the hulk like the hulk takes a swing and he jams down to ant size and then he sneaks up behind him turns giant to punch him in the back but it's very funny because he has to take a pill every yeah. time he does this yeah so and he talks about like you know, he only has so many pills, but there's a very funny shot of him, like, with his fingers in his mouth, just, like, shoveling pills. <laughs> just, just the fact that, like, it's just a man frantically, like, shoving shoving pills down his throat. It's He's popping good. pills a ton. It's a it's a fun page sequence, but it is also like, man, this dude needs a glass of water. Like, he's got all... <laughs> <laughs> he's just dry, dry, dry taking pills. all these pills. I do think um, Ant-Man's fight versus the Hulk, where he's yeah. constantly going tiny and large, is pretty fun. And I actually yeah. think the Wasp has another interesting take, too, where early in the issue, oh, yeah, she yeah. rattles around in the Hulk's eardrum, super yeah. tiny, to, like, just disorient, disorient him. So I actually think, like, Ant-Man and Wasp have the best sort of Hulk approaches of anyone here. Speaking of pills, this this ends, this is the worst ending to like a pretty good buildup. Like yeah, th- this right. has been rolling for two two issues. It's a pretty good buildup to the Hulk is unstoppable. And then it has the, the stupidest day XX Machina. Yeah, so Rick, as all this fighting is happening, again, we got Rick Jones up here and he sneaks up on the Hulk and he has an anti-gamma capsule, AKA MacGuffin, that mm-hmm. he sneaks into the Hulk's open mouth <laughs> and gets and gets Hulk to take, and this turns him back to Bruce Banner. So the Hulk falls into the the open body of water below them, right. and Bruce Banner drifts away apparently safely. He doesn't just drown somehow, even though he's like unconscious. Um, and that's basically Rick saves the day through um, again. There's a lot of pill popping here, um, but through this anti gamma capsule. Yeah, yeah, and it's to- it's so unsatisfying. The Hulk is unstoppable. No one can stop him. And in one panel, it's like, oh, here's the thing that turns him away from, turns him back to a human. I'll do that. Like, they, yeah. It's, yeah, it's not set up at all. It's totally ridiculous. Yeah, it is a weaker ending. It does end with the Fantastic Four and Avengers kind of reconciling their differences and saying, mm-hmm. okay, we fought together. It wasn't super smooth, but we're clearly on the same side. Like, if one yeah. of us needs help, you know, and it basically it establishes that, like, okay, they're going to be on friendly terms. Um, yeah, from right, this point right. forward, which might seem like a given, but again, this is the first time that sort of happens. Yeah. Okay, so next up, we read Fantastic Four Annual Number Two, and there is a lot to cover here, so I'm going to try to I'm going to try to move through it. So this is split into two stories. The first of which is a self-contained origin of Doctor Doom, and this is really fun. Um, it shows a country named Latveria, which we've talked about, but I don't think has been formally introduced. And it is in the heart of the Bavarian Alps. So it's just <laughs> hidden somewhere in the mountains. There's an entire country. So I actually looked this up because I'm terrible with geography. I did too. I Google mapped La- <laughs> Bavarian Alps. And the Bav- I thought you were going to say Latveria, which would have been very fun. But um, <laughs> it's a mountain range in Germany. Right. And it's basically, it's like the southern end of Germany. It's between Switzerland and Austria. Yep. Yeah. And it's just, there's another country there just hiding somewhere in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh... 
chose Doctor Doom present day on his throne, and an old man named Boris comes up and leads him outside outside of the castle by torchlight, and it, it's 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 a really cool sequence of this really atmospheric scene of Doctor Doom who's being somber, which is something we haven't seen before. He's mm-hmm. usually loud and maniacal and, you know, talking about defeating the Fantastic Four or whatever. He's he's very somber. And while he's he's heading outside in this this dark, foggy night, uh, and they, they head up to a, a grave somewhere outside the castle grounds. This goes to a flashback. Actually, whose grave is that? I don't know if they actually say. Who's, is it his father or his mother? I mean, I assume it's his mother, but I... I don't know that they actually show that yet. Because his mother dies before the, the this flashback even happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I don't know, whatever. So, there's a flashback to Victor Von Doom as a young boy and his whole family and his tribe of, they call them gypsies. I know Romani is probably the word we should be using. Yeah, I one thing I've picked up from um, some comics critics over the past few years is that that term, yeah. I guess, is is like a slur. To the Romani people, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. something I knew about. Yeah. So I think just like as far as our own conversation around it, let's not use it. Yeah. They use it in the comic. Definitely, if that's yeah. offensive to you, um, be like be sure. forewarned. I think as readers yeah. go, again, this is not something that was on my radar. I've just I know I've heard that. It's one of those those words where a group of people identified by an outside group, right? It, it's not what they call it. it's like Indian, right? Yeah, like it's. Uh, I thought like Oriental. It kind of reminds me of too. Right, exactly. It, it, I think it's on the same level of those. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good call. So this uh, this tribe of Romani is you know all, all set up in their wagons outside of the Lord's castle, and the Lord comes down to take Victor Von Doom's father, who's a who's the tribe's healer. He takes him up to the castle to heal the Lord's wife, and uh, he says, Von Doom's father says uh, he doesn't think he can do anything about this. She's too far gone, and the Lord says. Something like, you know, you better be wrong or you'll mm-hmm. pay for it. Um, Victor's father goes back to his son and decides they have to run for it because he doesn't want to. He's going to be tracked by the, the Lord and his soldiers. They go on the run, just the two of them. They're exposed to the cold and Victor Von Doom's father kind of collapses from the cold, protecting his son, Boris, a young man. or It's not exactly young, but <laughs> a middle-aged man, Boris, who is the old man we saw with Doom in the present. He kind of rescues them, brings them back to a tent, and Von Doom's father is laying there dying. He says, heed my last words. You must protect, protect, uh, yeah. and then dies. <laughs> Victor Von Doom says, as a like a 10-year-old boy, none will have to protect me. I shall become powerful, strong. I shall avenge your death. And I really like this. Boris says, <laughs> Boris thinks to himself, uh, he did not mean protect the boy. It's the world that must be protected from the son who bears the name Von Doom. Uh, it's a good twist, even though... It's a little fast. Yeah, we have no indication that this 10-year-old boy is, like, an evil genius. But um, Boris also thinks that Von Doom must never find out that his mother was a sorceress and that, that like, dark magical blood runs through his veins as well. So naturally, Von Doom goes digging through uh, a chest that it turns out... It's like two pa- two panels later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he finds the chest that belonged to his mother, and he finds all these magic potions and uh, what he calls strange scientific secrets. He goes, "Why did I never suspect my mother was a witch?" And he's excited. He's jazzed yeah. <laughs> about this, and he's he's all into learning yeah. her secrets. So we get sort of the I, it, this whole sequence is like 
one of the most, or it's the most fleshed out supervillain origin we've seen in Marvel to date. Yeah. Um, but it really oh, yeah, explains yeah. like his fascination with sorcery in a lot of ways. And, and that blurring of the line between like invention, scientific invention and sorcery. Right. So we've got the sequence of events of him growing up. He's becoming, you know, he's in his late teens uh, and he's traveling around creating all these like marvelous inventions like a, a little box that you insert into your violin that will play the violin beautifully. But as soon as he he sells it to a nobleman, and then as soon as he gets a few miles away, it explodes. Mm-hmm. Or he sells a golden statue to another nobleman. And then again, once he gets out of town, the whole thing melts into a pile of clay. He's kind of like an inventive grifter. Yeah, he just pulls a bunch of fake outs. Like, <laughs> it's just his entire you know, adolescence is just just fake outs and practical jokes now the one i really like that is that does foreshadow a little bit of what he'll become is he gets arrested and the entire countryside is up in arms and they have him in front of a firing squad oh yeah (laughs) and the military fires and it's it's the end of dr doom right or victor von doom um but it's a robot it's a doom bot the first of its kind and this is something that we'll see a lot of is like anytime it seems like von doom is you know, on his last legs or on the outs, right. probably a Doombot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's one of his earliest creations here. So uh, we we have a scene of a, like, an academic, a, a college worker who shows up to Latveria and says he's traveled for months to find Victor Von Doom. What a recruiting off- department. Yeah, I know. This college it's wild. Has. Yeah. To offer a scholarship to State University, which is just like, they couldn't have used a better college name. Like, learning you (laughs) so at textbook college victor von doom meets a young reed richards who's also a sort of matriculating freshman yeah and reed richards like keeps trying to room up with him despite victor von doom being like he's such an eager beaver he's very like you know he's super friendly and victor von doom is get away from me you weakling mind like i won't room with a lesser and and reed continues reed like despite that reed's like oh buck up old chum We'd make a great team. <laughs> He's very persistent until Von Doom finally pushes him away. And then at yeah. that point, um, Reed meets up with what he calls, oh, Ben Grimm, the touchdown king, which I love <laughs> that he knows him and he knows him as the touchdown king. And you get the football jock and the scientific scholar, uh, mm-hmm. Reed and Ben become roommates because Von yep. Doom wouldn't room with Reed, basically. Later, Richard, Richard Reed, no, Reed Richard uh, finds some plans for this, like these blueprints that Dr. Doom has I keep calling him Dr. Doom. The Victor has created, and he tries to warn Victor that some of his numbers are off on, on these blueprints, and Doom just gets mad at him for, like, peeping on his inventions and shoes him away, cut to him, inserting himself into this, like, machine. It's basically a big mechanical throne where you have one of those, uh, like, one of those salon, one of those big domes that they put on your head in a salon <laughs> that covers his whole face. You have no idea what this is for. They don't really explain it. It's just a big machine that, that he puts his head into. <laughs> yeah, we know in hindsight, but at the time, um, all they say is he's been experimenting with matter transmutation and dimension warps. Yep, yep. So we don't know what he's doing, but we know that Reed Richards thinks that something's wrong with the plan and it explodes in his face. And we actually saw this, I think, back in the, the first like one-page Origin of Doom. They did use this exact machine. He is injured, his face is covered in bandages, he's totally disfigured, and the college expels him for experimenting with dark science. Yeah. Doom expelled from school. He travels to Tibet, and it's pretty similar to the shots we've seen of Doctor Strange traveling in Tibet, uh, even down to he gets found by a bunch of 
vaguely mystical monks. And with these monks, he decides to forge armor to cover his body. And they show him forging his armor and his iconic mask, putting that on. I don't exactly know why he needs to be in Tibet or why there's like this mystical aura around the whole thing, because it basically just looks like he's forging some armor. Yeah, it's a little bit like they mentioned, you know, he's learning their secrets. So there's a little bit of like yeah. maybe scientific or sorcery discovery going yeah. on on Manu's part. I don't know how intentional that is. There's a good line as they're putting the armor together is, you know, they take out the mask and it's still hot, mm, right? Yeah, and it's yeah. like, we're still going to put this on your face. And Von Doom says, pain, that is for lesser men. What can pain mean to Victor Von Doom? And then yep, they put yeah. this burning hot mask on his face where it, gonna... is, uh, where it will stay as he, you know, transforms now pretty formally into Dr. Doom. Yep, puts on those green robes over his, like, metal encased body. Yeah. He also makes a jetpack and a camouflage ring. But he, he jetpacks off out of Tibet, and then we cut back to present-day Latveria, where Doom is the ruler of this prosperous nation. And we don't really get expla- explanation for that. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of implied that he went and conquered or something. No, the one thing we do get is we see Doom walking through the town, the village square yep. in Latveria, and basically all the people are out dressed very, um, like, I don't know, what I think of as, like, old-timey German. Yeah. Yeah. Where, but um, they're basically like, oh, master, thank you, thank you, right? And it's that we get this sense of all the people there, even if they're maybe secretly a little scared or, you know, resisting his his regime outwardly, they are very appreciative. Um, and you do get the sense that, like, Doom's big thing is, like, I'm a benevolent lord, my people love me, and that's important to him. It's not like this um, this iron ruling with an iron fist dictatorship, right, where everybody is terrified and the... And being monitored by the secret police and there's military presence everywhere. It actually kind of looks idyllic, right? It kind of right. looks like this prosperous, idyllic, turn-of-the-century German-ish nation. And that's one of the harder things always about Von Doom is, like, you often get the sense that his country is actually very well run. Right, um, yeah. And that maybe there are these dark secrets underneath, you know, that'll get mm-hmm. fleshed out a little. But a lot of times it's like, well... Do we actually need to take him out of power? Is it, it's, his people seem pretty happy. Um, right, so exactly. writers have an interesting time playing with like, is this, how do you handle that? Like, is th- this guy's actually a good ruler. It's way, it's way more interesting than if he was just a cruel dictator. Yeah. It, it's way more interesting having him be, you know, it, that his people actually, if not love, then respect him for keeping peace and prosperity. And having that be important to him. Gives him, yeah. you know, it gives him a sense of pride, and it's like, well, that's actually a good motivation, <laughs> you know. And it also grounds him and his position in the world in a real place. Besides, like it, like we just talked about the Mandarin. Who knows what the Mandarin's doing? Where does the Mandarin get money? Where does the Mandarin? How does he fund his dark experiments? Like all yeah. that stuff. Like Doom, he runs a country. He has ambassadors. He has political power as well as the scientific power. Right? He, yeah. he exists. It, it kind of just grounds him as existing in the world as a real power rather than just like a villain with these vague, unlimited resources. Right. Totally. So that's kind of, that's Von Doom's origin and it's very well fleshed out. Like you said, you know, it basically takes that one page and ask for number five spread. Yeah. And builds it out into a whole, into a whole sequence of events um, that, that explains Victor Von Doom and it makes him, it can, really it continues him as the most interesting and complex villain in the Marvel Universe to date. So from that point, we get, because this is an annual, you get a sequence of pinups 
mm-hmm. of Fantastic Four villains that have recently been released. And I thought we could oh, maybe yeah. just roll call these because uh, a lot of these we have skipped over in the course of the My Marvelous Year reading list. And there's some pretty important villains. So I actually touch on most of these in extra issues. So that's it. That's if you want to hear a little bit more about these uh, these villains, almost all of them I've I've touched across or touched upon in extra issues. Yeah, and, and one thing I'll you know always say is is read all these Fantastic Four issues. Like just because yeah, we yeah. you know just because I don't list them as essential or whatever, read them. Um, yeah. Super Scroll Fantastic Four number eighteen. You get Rama Tut in Fantastic Four number nineteen. He's he's yeah he's pretty interesting. Super Scroll I haven't covered. I'm actually going to go back and cover him again in the, the next extra issues. We'll talk about Rama Tut. In, uh, in Avengers here in a bit too. Yeah, I I, I covered Ramadan and he his issue the issue where he shows up I don't remember the number um, is really good. It's That's worth man. checking out. Yeah, Molecule Man in Fantastic Four number twenty. Yeah, he's fine. <laughs> the Hate Monger in Fantastic Four number twenty one. Oh my God, AKA Adolf Hitler. <laughs> AKA the actual Adolf Hitler. And then yeah. another big one here is Diablo in Fantastic Four number thirty. So oh, I don't know anything about him. Yeah, it's a nice suite of recurring Fantastic Four villains yeah. and recurring Marvel Universe villains that, again, I'd recommend you read every Fantastic Four issue you can, but mm-hmm. uh, those are some big ones to touch on as well. And then you get a bunch of these pinups of the Fantastic Four, these big one-page spreads of each individual character. The one I really want to call out is there's a funny one of Ben Grimm, the thing, with a metal detector, uh, <laughs> using a metal detector on a package from Yancey Street. Yeah. <laughs> It's the Acme Mind Detector, too. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner, you know? Yeah, it's it's very funny. That's all just the first half of Fantastic Four Annual Number One. There's so much that happens here. The second half is a different story where uh, it opens up on the Fantastic Floor flying their Fantastic Car. Reed Richards chastises the thing because he forgot to rebore the jet exhausts. So the Fantastic Car starts going down and crashing in the middle of Manhattan or something. Johnny Storm starts trying to get traffic out of the way. And all the cars get pushed out of the way so the, the Fantastic Car can crash land, except for this old jalopy that the Fantastic Car kind of bumps into, like a fender bender. I appreciate the simplicity of the Fantastic Four getting into a fender bender. It's a very yeah. like real-world problem applied to this cosmic super team. This is actually kind of a reoccurring thing where before they get into the main plot, they usually show some scene of them doing something a little bit more mundane. Johnny and the thing getting into a fight, Reed mm-hmm. conducting an experiment that doesn't have anything to do with the, the main plot. They usually try to like to have these kind of cold opens, I guess. And, yeah. and they're always fun. Like oftentimes they're my favorite part of the issue. <laughs> these these just moments of kind of mundane living. We cut to Dr. Doom flying through space. Maybe you can provide context. I, d- I don't remember why he's like he's li- he's not flying through space. Like no, he's being hurled. The last time so, he's free floating, just hurtling through space. Yeah, the last time we saw him was Fantastic Four number twenty three, mm-hmm. um, which ends with him, uh, you know, being tossed into space. Classic Doctor Doom style. At this point, any issue yep. that he appears in ends with him vanishing from sight. And right. basically, as he's flying, and he says, you know, he's only got a little bit of oxygen left. He encounters a spaceship. And it happens to be the spaceship of another Fantastic Four villain we just talked about, Rama Tut, the pharaoh the Fantastic Four traveled back in time and met in Fantastic Four number 19. Yeah, I can give a little background on this. In that issue, the Fantastic Four went to ancient Egypt, found this like despot pharaoh of Egypt, who turned out to be a time traveler from the future, from the year 3000, which is this like technocratic utopia, who in the year 3000 created a time machine that... He got plans from an ancestor of his that may or may not have been Dr. Doom. 
and so that he went to ancient Egypt and then in that issue he hurtled off into space and I don't know if it like he went through time or if he's just been hanging out in space for a thousand years it kind of makes it seem like he's just been hanging out in space for <laughs> a thousand years but yeah I mean the the sheer time travel complexity of Raman yeah. Tut and Doctor Doom meeting is is very heady stuff. <laughs> time yeah. travel obviously gets messy, but they they sort of have a moment here where they look at each other and it's like, I could be your ancestor. Wait, I could be you. <laughs> are, are you me? Like they they actually have a really fun panel of the two of them in profile, face to face, like having this discussion, just to really draw that parallel. And they draw it, and the way it's it's way it's lettered is the um the bubble is they're saying it at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. And so you have Ramatut and Doctor Doom both saying it at the exact same time. But if we're both the same man. How can we coexist at the same moment in eternity? <laughs> Which is pretty great. The only thing, though, about this is that visually they have no they they have nothing in common visually because Doctor Doom is well he's Doctor Doom he's like he looks like a robot in a robe and Ramatut is just a shirtless Egyptian pharaoh. So yeah, there's a yeah there's that kind of clash there. It's one of the weirder time travel paradoxes that will continue like throughout Marvel history is the whole yep. Ramatut Doom. And then we'll get to King the Conqueror connections. Yeah. It's yeah. all one big circle. Yeah, right. So uh, Ramatat and Doctor Doom. Ramatat decides to send Doctor Doom back to Earth to defeat the Fantastic Four. But they both decide that they can't both go to Earth. Because if one of them dies during the battle, then the other one will cease to exist if they're both in the same time. Which doesn't make sense. It's some kind of time paradox thing. But that doesn't actually make sense in any real way. But basically, Doom gets sent back to Earth by Ramatut, and Ramatut decides to go back to, I think, the the, 30, the 30th century. Actually, they keep calling it the 30th century, even though it's the year 3000, which would be the 31st. That's a detail that kept bugging me. Hmm. <laughs> so Doom, Doom gets shot back to Earth and then parachutes directly into New York City. Mm-hmm. And he starts planning something. He goes to the Latvian embassy and talks to his ambassador to plan something nefarious against the Fantastic Four. Yeah, and we know at this point, obviously, that Latveria is Doom. Um, and Doom, basically, he, when he gets there, he sees this prime minister in conversation. So they, he's mm-hmm. kind of got like a, a puppet in place to yeah. handle the politics of things. It's not like Doom walks into, you know, the UN or something. Yeah. Um, so it's like a, it's a nation that is functioning on its own, it's, as we mentioned, and the Fantastic Four don't connect these dots. Like the world yeah. doesn't know of the connection at this point. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Dr. Doom's place in that country is a secret to the outside. So uh, we cut back to the Fantastic Four. And Richard, I keep calling to call him Richard Reed. Reed Richards is testing out a new glue for NASA to, to glue the nose cone onto missiles, which Stanley puts so much stock in glue. Adhesives are the rage, man. <laughs> Sue, Sue Storm comes in with an invitation to a ball from the Latvian embassy. She's really excited because she'll get to wear a new gown, but Reed Richards... Like, almost a little too happy to, to to squash that. Tells her, no, we have to wear our Fantastic Four uniforms. It's right here on the invitation. They all go to this ball. There's a really fun panel uh, of just the Fantastic Four standing uh, over this banquet table at mm-hmm. the ball. Nothing particular happens. It's just a really good detail-filled Jack Kirby shot. I, I don't know. I really I really like that picture. Yeah. Um, they all sit down to this banquet, and they're being served this... this juice that is made from a special berry only found in latveria at one point the waiter goes to pour it into ben Grimm's cup and he's like fill it up waiter i'm a big boy now which again ben Grimm, you don't need to say also also like details ben is like a big drinker 
here, which I don't really think of him as. But all of them drink it, except for Reed Richards, who is somewhat suspicious. The ambassador goes back to Dr. Doom behind the, you know, in some back room. And Dr. Doom says, have all the Fantastic Four partaken of my specially prepared berry drink? <laughs> it's a very funny line for for a cackling villain to say. I like the phrase, my specially prepared berry drink. <laughs> I do like the idea that he was like, he got really into mixology, you know, just like super into preparing cocktails. Um. So the Fantastic Four start to start to schmooze at this ball. Johnny takes one of the like Latvian duchesses out to the balcony, and he's kind of flirting with her. And then mm-hmm. from from off screen, the thing says, "I always said you talk too much, hothead. Why don't you just kiss her?" Johnny is so scandalized by this. It's really funny. Johnny is totally like. I mean, it's not just embarrassed. He turns to Ben and says, Ben, have you flipped your lid? You never talked like that before. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's very funny for just, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. That's a little <laughs> like, disrespect. It's like disrespectful and like maybe a little embarrassing for the time. No, I know, but the thing does, like, the thing literally throws, you know, like, I don't know, regularly tears apart entire like scientific complexes and is is so destructive and they get into these huge fights all the time but he says why don't you just kiss her and johnny is like that's that's the line for johnny (laughs) so johnny sees he he goes to um confront the thing the thing kind of punches him on the jaw and runs off sue storm walks in on reed richards kissing another woman and the thing is sitting talking to somebody in the ball and he sees Johnny Storm attack him with flame. And it becomes clear that the three of them are hallucinating because of this berry drink. And they're seeing kind of their the worst version of other Fantastic Four members. Yeah, and it leads to a classic internal team fight, which is right, obviously yeah. Doctor Doom's plot all along. They're all confused why the others are fighting them, but then they're mad that the others yeah. are attacking them. Sue's super mad at Reed. Um, oh, God, I know. actually, I love how mad Sue got at Reed. It's appropriate, like, yeah. she is. It's appropriate, and it's also just like... She's having none of it. Like, as soon as she sees him kiss somebody else, she's just like, oh, well, you know what? Forget you, Reed. I'm out of here. I quit the Fantastic Four and uh, our engagement's off. Bye. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's very, very matter of fact. Yeah, she's not going to mess around with that or, or, you know, take it, which is which is good. The re- So the team's fighting and the, the only thing that stops them, basically, is Dr. Doom, for some reason, decides at this moment to look at his face. So he takes <laughs> yeah. his mask off. He's so distraught over his own face you know he says i must i cannot stop myself i must look and then no it's worse than i remembered and he shoots the mirror with a laser pointer in his or no with an actual gun he pulls up and he shoots it with like a laser gun and uh and then they hear the bang in the shot and it's sort of like the team's like what was that you know it calls him to attention i know I, i like that they're they're all in the middle of a brawl but they hear like some glass break and they're like our fight can wait. We need to find out who broke that glass. Yeah, and it finally finally brings our attention to the fact that Doom uh, has been behind this all along. So Doctor Doom really self sabotages there uh, quite needlessly. Yeah, and so Reed Richards explains like we've all been under the influence of this uh, hallucinatory drug, and Sue says like, "Oh, I've been such a fool." Oh boy. Reed says, "Not a fool, Sue. Merely a female." Ugh. Ugh. I'm gonna go Reed's worst line to date. Yeah, and yeah. and the worst written line of Stan Lee's Marvel career to date, <laughs> um, and yep. and so it just it's one of those things you read and you're like, man, I gotta 
show somebody this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can't like, believe they wrote this down on paper. It's rough. Yeah, um, they have a pretty fun fight with Doctor Doom, where you know they they all kind of tangle with him, but it ends up in a standstill. And then we get this amazing scene where Reed pulls out like it basically is going to be a final duel between Reed Richards and Doctor Doom. So the two of them kind of have like this gentleman's toast <laughs> at the end yeah. uh, b- before their final duel. And Reed pulls out this big contraption and Sue says something like, oh, what, what is that? Is that? And uh, Dr. Doom immediately says, no need to explain. I recognize that contraption immediately and understand its purpose. Mm-hmm. It's just a big nonsense piece of Jack Kirby machinery. Well, if you were a scientific genius, you'd get it. <laughs> yeah. If you were a scientific genius, you would understand that it's an encephalo gun that you you link two minds up to and it banishes the one with the lesser mentality to a timeless limbo like yeah clearly you just that's a very fun idea yeah i like i i think it's just very funny that he can just glance at this machine and say like oh yeah of course it just you know it banishes the weak mind to limbo of course it's I basically understand. re-challenging doom to a game of trivial pursuit winner take all right yeah so the, it's they just both basically stick their their head onto this like suction cup thing and it will just judge which of them is the smartest yeah the two of them put it on. Reed Richards, like, they, they kind of have this mental struggle where they both look very thoughtful. And Reed Richards starts to fade from existence. And clearly, Dr. Doom has the greater mentality, as they call it. And he wins the day. Uh, he starts gloating, you know, of course, I was the greater. Um, you know, I was the greater of the two of us. And I'm the smartest and the whole world will know it. You know, I, I need to, I don't need to defeat the Fantastic Four further. This is my greatest victory. And he, he kind of just, he walks out gloating. Yeah. Uh, at which point Reed Richards kind of like steps out from behind the door. <laughs> He's like hiding behind something. He gave Dr. Doom the same bar- hallucinatory berry juice, which makes him kind of see that Reed Richards vanishes and Reed Richards just allows Dr. Doom to walk away thinking he's victorious. And that's the way they're going to deal with him is he's just going to, you know, if he doesn't think the Fantastic Four exists anymore, he doesn't have to deal with them anymore. So he won't be a threat. And Lee, has, in his like narrative captions, has been teasing throughout this annual that Doctor Doom's going to win, you guys. Like, you're not going to believe it. Doctor Doom's going to win. And oh, this yeah, is kind of yeah. how they cheat that and say, like, Doom walks away as a winner, thinking yep. he's a winner. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, we know the last page that Reed totally tricked him. Um, so yeah. it's a pretty fun ending. I, I, I like, like brain it, yeah. battles. I like mind wars, especially yeah. <laughs> between any battle between Dr. Noom and Reed Richards that comes down to like science is, is really great. There, there's a, there, the last panel of this is the four of the fantastic four watching Dr. Doom leave. And so yeah, Reed Richards is talking about, hopefully he'll never find out what happened here today. You know, he'll be back a stronger threat than ever. Johnny storm is like, well, if he comes back, the, our combined power, will defeat him, etc. They're just kind of looking at him, thinking, you know, thinking about what's going to happen in the future with Doom. Ben Grimm just says, I wonder if he ever lived on Yancey Street. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny. Yeah. His obsession, I love like his obsession with Yancey Street. Like Dr. Doom is this world ending threat often, but Ben Grimm is mostly just wondering like, I wonder if Yancey Street had anything to do with this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, after this, we read... We moved into Strange Tales 126, which, again, is a a Human Torch slash Doctor Strange split. All right, so Strange Tales number 126, which came out in November of 1964. We're going to talk about the first half, the the Human Torch and Everlove and Thing team up very quickly, just because it introduces the... the Mad Thinker and the Puppet Master to the My Marvelous Year reading list. Both these villains <laughs> have been introduced in 
Fantastic Four, of course, but this is the first time we'll be reading them as part of our list. And basically, they have a team up here um, written by Lee, art by Dick Ayers, inks by Paul Reinman, and letters by Sam Rosen. And they plan to destroy the torch via the thing. So the puppet master is, uh, we've learned, Alicia Masters' father. And mm-hmm. he's a supervillain who creates puppets that basically he's able to control um, a person's being. You know, he's kind of like the classic voodoo doll, yep. you know, construction where he creates a puppet of all the Fantastic Four members, in this case, the thing, and then uses that to fight the torch. And his his design him. is pretty fun because he kind of looks like a almost a somewhat featureless, like ventriloquist doll himself. Yeah. Uh, he's got these kind of eerie... Especially his eyebrows, but he kind of has this like painted on look of his face. Which is it's kind of like an evil looking Professor X with a very yeah, bald head, yeah, yeah, which is sure. very, um, you know, his eyebrows are always arched. Um, so he's working at the behest of the Mad Thinker, who his whole deal is really outsmarting Reed Richards. Like he mm-hmm. is, yeah. a, he's the planner, everything down to the last second. There's a good line in here where he's like, my calculation was off by one tenth of a second. And that's the thing about the the Mad Thinker is he's always off by just enough that the Fantastic Four take him. I know he says that this plan is is foolproof to ninety nine point nine nine percent. It's like, well, is it though? Like his idea is just why don't you create a voodoo doll of the thing and make him beat up the torch mm-hmm. or the the Human Torch, mm-hmm. and then that's it. That's that's his whole plan. It's not as far as villains' plans go. It's pretty basic. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, the way that Ben escapes the Puppet Master's thing is he just transforms. Yeah. Back to Ben Grimm from the thing. Yep. Um, which like which has win. happened over and over again. This is actually like a reoccurring way that the Fantastic Four get out of trouble. Like when they broke onto Doom's thing, Doom had a ship and uh, he had all their like genetic information locked in. But he didn't have Ben Grimm's human form locked in. So when he reverts to Ben Grimm, he can pass by safely. Uh, Ramatut had them all hypnotized, but he didn't have Ben Grimm hypnotized, just the yeah. thing. So he revert like that keeps being the way that they get out of trouble is that, you know, someone has them powerless, but it's just the thing, not Ben Grimm. Yeah, they use it a bunch. Um yeah. basically the the key thing I would say here, this issue is about ninety percent of the way to being a Fantastic Four comic, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. the only like the only member who doesn't show up is Sue. Um right. Reed devises a gizmo that helps Johnny and the thing. So they take out the Puppet Master and uh, Man Thinker. If you're unfamiliar with those villains, I recommend reading their origins in Fantastic Four. But otherwise, you get a nice little like side FF story here. Um, it's fine. It yeah, works. Yeah, it's okay. It's not bad. So that takes us into the the piece of the puzzle that I like a lot more, which is Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts. And here we get the introduction to the domain of the Dread Dormammu. Yeah. So this is a story by Stanley, Steve Ditko, and Art Samek. Um, it begins with the Ancient One calling Doctor Strange to warn him of of the threat of Dormammu, essentially. So he basically just straight away, no bones about it, sends him into the domain. He says that he can't do it himself. He's going to have to send in Doctor Strange to go prevent the menace of Dormammu from invading Earth. So this is where we get really our first take on, or our most um, notable take, certainly, on Steve Ditko's drawing of alternate realities, and frankly, yeah. anyone's drawing of alternate realities, yeah. the mystical landscapes of the domain of Dread Dormammu. Uh, they're these bending, twisting stairways and doors through negative space. More often than not, you know, a lot of times it's like big tendrils or staircases sort of just out in the middle of nowhere, and it's like... These pages were... Yeah, you, you were talking about how it's psychedelic. The, the last few were psychedelic, but they'll get more so. This is really like... 
this is, I think, what you were talking about when it said, like, psychedelic drawings. Yeah. It, it's, it's a little bit, like, modern art mixed with Cthulhu. It's got a little bit mm-hmm. of that, like, some mm-hmm. of the design is very, like, Lovecraftian and a little bit of, like, Greek mythology, some of the, the creatures. So the first thing he comes across is this guardian that's, like, this six-armed creature or something dark, guarding a doorway with a, a big eye. And it, it feels very, that feels very, like, Greek myth to me. But then, you know, the rest of the settings, you've got these just kind of strange, enormous spires and twisting staircases flying through, you know, empty space. And I think visually, this is a lot of fun. I think actually I'm pretty bored with this issue overall, because the story and the actual setting don't do anything for me. Like, it is all style and no substance for Mm. me here, where like, I have no connection to Dormammu. I don't have any kind of particular feel. I know he's kind of a, a one of the big bads. I haven't read anything that way. So to me, it's just kind of like a bunch of flashy visuals in an empty space that doesn't quite make sense. Um, See, I actually kind of disagree because I think it actually starts to give some substance to these alternate dimensions that Strange plays in, Mm -hmm. where it builds out that like this place has inhabitants. So as Strange is trying to navigate this domain and figure out where to go, and he's finding all these sort of monstrous guardians, we are introduced to Clea, who is a young uh, human shaped looking like inhabitant of the domain (laughs) yeah so it sort of establishes that there are people living here under the protection of Dormammu um and again like it even though it is surreal and abstract as far as location goes it gives it gives a sense of like civilization to it before Strange even encounters Dormammu for the first time yeah but it's like it's only like the bear like they say people live here but how right like do they have houses it's kind of weird to imagine that they they live in a house in this land like it's so or that you know that people here have food or economy or any like literally anything right like it just feels it feels a little random to me and i actually i it's just the nuts and bolts it's just yeah, the nuts and bolts yeah. it's you know so they there's a line in here where they say worlds exist within worlds which yeah. is a cool idea but like yeah it's definitely you know how we talked about like in journey to mystery tales of asgard fleshes out the world mm-hmm. of asgard yeah. i feel like strange tales could use that like yeah. Tales of Dormammu Land, yeah. <laughs> you know. Oh yeah, like I, I am, I'm totally interested in finding out more about this. And the next issue actually does a little bit of that mm-hmm. with the mindless ones. I think that that starts to bring in a little bit of like the ecology of this place. Mm-hmm. I think specifically this one, less so the next issue. I felt like this was a little bit more the style over any kind of substance. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm excited to to see it blossom out and you know you know maybe this is just a a a preference of how comfortable we are with like living in that kind of ill-defined space or whatever yeah that and i feel like that's a good call out here too is like we i've seen designs like this in a lot of comics readers in 1964 had not necessarily oh yeah no definitely like this was i i i'm i'm kind of complaining that it's all style no substance but the style might have just been enough back in 64 because it is it is very striking, and I'm sure it was particularly striking at the time. Yeah. So we get Strange um, engaging in these series of battles, like I said, with the Guardians leading up to Dormammu. We get a lot of his catchphrases here, like yeah. in, um, in Abundance. So we get the Light of the Vishanti, Omnipotent Oshtar, Rings of Ragador, and Vapors of Valtor, among others. Does he say by the, by the hoary hosts of Hogoth? By the hoary hosts of Hogoth, yeah. So yeah. like these things are recurring catchphrases of Strange's that I are always fun for me yeah they yeah they're good they're, they're i mean it's that classic stanley alliteration and he's particularly good at it here 
I really want to credit Praise. him here for coming up with like all these kind of mystical sounding names that almost sound like he's pulling them out of real mythology. Yeah. But they're not. No, I thought the same thing. I thought it was like, I thought it was like an established mythology. Um, so this issue kind of ends with Clea finally intervenes. You know, she's been watching Doctor Strange for a while. And in kind of hinting, like, why do I find him so interesting? And, you know, all the, the standard kind of romance building stuff. Yeah. Um, but she warns him when Dormammu threatens to uh, to finally take on Doctor Strange and kill him himself after seeing that his guardians have failed. Um, she steps in to warn Doctor yeah. Strange and basically says, you know, hey, heads up, Dormammu is coming for you. Strange, of course, is unconcerned because that's why he's here, is to right. deliver his message to Dormammu. And we didn't really talk about Dorm- Dormammu like who he is or what he's doing. The ancient one has sent strange here to stop Dormammu from basically invading earth and taking over the earth with his magic powers. He's like this humanoid in big armor whose head is completely obscured behind flames. Yeah. So if you've seen a, if you've watched adventure time, the flame King is actually like a very similar look to him. Hmm. Um, there's nothing particularly like interesting about his motivations at this point. Yeah. And we don't really get a sense too of like, why he wants to invade earth or even if he's really actively considering that or what spurred it on right now in this moment or so that's going to lead us into strange tales number 127 so this again opens up with the human torch thing team up this one's kind of funny it has the human torch and the thing are both upset that reed richards is kind of hogging the spotlight as the leader and why does he get to be a leader so they both quit the fantastic four they also they the two of them then get invited to a race um, out in the desert with these like um, these Indy 500 cars, they lose control of the cars and are kind of kidnapped via these these cars. And this this masked figure fights them in the side of a mountain. They kind of get knocked out, and the the masked figure removes his mask to reveal that it was Reed Richards teaching them a lesson all along. They do need a leader, and he's actually the competent one. And you know they're like, we were just blowing off steam. You could have just told us. And he was like, I needed to make my point the thing I, again kind of showing that reed richards is a little bit of a blowhard and a li- pretty arrogant in a way that i think was actually trying to be characterized characterizing him as arrogant which which works here like he comes across as very arrogant i do P- like um competent but arrogant yeah i do like the twist of him as a mystery villain as well because of what it will foreshadow for for some very modern comics um i won't say any more than that yeah i have spoil no idea it. what that means so. but it well it sort of gives like what if Reed wasn't a good guy? It puts that thought in the bug in the back hmm. of your mind a little. Yeah. Which yeah, is yeah. interesting to me. Um, a couple small things to point out that I don't think we've talked about. Johnny Storm is doing something called going Nova at this point hmm. where he can unleash this enormous burst of energy and heat, uh, but it really diminishes him afterwards, kind of like setting off a little nuclear bomb. And then the thing, we we, we missed this, but... Uh, he has started up his classic catchphrase of it's clobbering time. Oh, yeah. He uses that here. Uh, the back half of Strange Tales 127 picks up with Dormammu and Strange facing off. Dormammu is so confident of his victory over Strange. He tells, and he's not even interested in fighting Doctor Strange. He wants to fight the Ancient One. He tells Doctor Strange, think about this fight before you actually commit to it. I'm going to give you some time. <laughs> and so, like, Doctor Strange basically gets sent to the waiting room to to ponder whether or not he actually wants to fight Dormammu. There, Clea, the woman from the last issue, approaches him and explains to Doctor Strange that within Dormammu's realm, kind of on the outskirts, there's a race of beings called the Mindless Ones. And she shows him they're these large, like, Hulk-sized 
clay men, big featureless monsters with one big red eye, and they only live to destroy into battle. They're just, they're basically like big mindless destruction machines. It is only by Dormammu's power that they are held back to the fringes of Dormammu's realm, keeping the rest of the inhabitants of this realm safe. So she says, if you destroy Dormammu, they'll be free and they'll come and destroy us all. So you can't. It's nice stakes building where it, it already was going to be a seemingly impossible battle for Strange to beat Dormammu. And then Clea basically asks him to throw the fight anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so it really adds some some complexity. Now Strange is torn because if he wins, he's destroying, he's dooming all the people in Dorm- Dormammu's realm. But if he loses, then Dormammu is going to invade Earth. And that's really what he needs to protect. Yeah. So he's kind of torn until Dormammu like lashes out at him. And then he's like, no, I made up my mind. I need to fight him and protect Earth. That's my main responsibility. So they have this kind of prolonged fight where it's a little bit of a cat and mouse game with Doctor Strange. Like Dormammu is pretty clearly just toying with Strange. And uh, Doctor Strange is barely holding his own. But while this is happening, Dormammu's barrier holding the mindless ones back begin to weaken. (laughs) And they start to break free. Uh, because his magic power is being diverted elsewhere, fighting Strange. Um, he turns and, you know, he basically says, I'll take care of you later. He turns to push back the Mindless Ones back into their their prison. And it's not enough. He doesn't, he, he is, he's weakened from his fight with Strange and he's not powerful enough to stop it. So Strange needs to lend him his power. He kind of starts funneling power into Dormammu in order to help him cage the mindless ones again yeah he bathes him in the light of the eye of agamotto in order to make dormammu even more powerful it's quite the gambit by strange when the mindless ones are caged again dormammu turns furious that he had to have help from dr strange because now he basically owes him a debt strange says dormammu might be evil but he has his own morality yeah dr strange basically asks him of two boons don't harm clea for advising me because dormammu was planning on i don't know banishing her or something and never invade Earth, which I feel like Dormammu could say, <laughs> no, that's too much. <laughs> like, I'll give you a new cloak or something, but I'm still going to invade Earth. He hates Strange, but he accepts that he will never invade Earth because Strange helped him with the Mindless Ones. Strange returns to Earth, where the, the Ancient One, who's kind of been shown as this feeble old man, usually like on death's door, is reinvigorated. He's like floating in air, <laughs> which apparently is like a sign that he's... You know, his his vim and vigor is back. He, he rewards for, for this task. He rewards Doctor Strange with two new items, a new amulet and a brand new red cloak, which is yeah. the classic red cloak, apparently, because he still has that blue cloak on. Yeah, he gets the equipment upgrade at the end of beating the level. And uh... <laughs> yeah, it feels very much like there's no real good story reason. It's just basically like we want to do a costume change on Doctor Strange. So we'll we'll bake it into the end of this story. Yeah, and that is how this one ends with Dormammu sort of trapped by his own code, um, an agree gentleman's agreement with Strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. Something we'll see come up a, a couple times with different heroes. Yeah. Uh, and next up, we read Amazing Spider-Man number eleven. All right. So Amazing Spidey number eleven. This is a story by Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, lettered by Sam Rosen. This is the return of Doctor Octopus. So the issue begins, Pete is sitting in his room pining for Betty Brant, and they've had kind of an on-again, off-again romance, and he hears Doc Ock has served his full prison sentence, <laughs> which when you think about 
super villains and you know plots to take over the world i guess it i guess it potentially highlights that like ak he didn't get very far in his plotting because his sentences commuted very quickly <laughs> yeah he got a real slap on the wrist so doc ak is released wearing i'm gonna say the best purple suit i've ever seen he looks <laughs> <laughs> he looks really really great and um he he's picked up ironically by betty brant so mm-hmm. this is kind of mysterious at this point. And Spider-Man is, is watching, watching from the shadows. And, you know, he's yes aghast at that Betty Brand has anything to do with Doc Ock. And he throws a, his little Spidey tracker, which I don't know if we've seen before, but this is a real through line that he has these tiny little trackers shaped like <laughs> shaped like his uh, his costume or has uh, has his face on it. Yeah, he does. Right? Or, is, or is it his face? Or no, they're little spiders. They're little spiders. He does develop them. Um, this issue, I do like that he brands them, lest yeah. um, <laughs> lest they actually be too covert. But yeah. yeah, he he throws it on their car as they speed away, and basically we find out shortly that the reason Doc Ock is picked up by Betty Brant is because her lawyer brother uh, Bennett, I believe, is caught up in some criminal conspiracies. He is, uh, labeled here as a gangland mouthpiece. And essentially he's gotten in over his head and is Doc Ock is basically being hired by these gangsters, um, headed up by a mobster named Blackie. Blackie looks like, uh, a sleepy Groucho Marx. <laughs> Did you notice this? Sleepy Groucho Marx. I'm I'm very into the idea of of an entire Marvel gang that's just like Marx Brothers lookalikes. That would be <laughs> really fun. God, they should just replace the Enforcers with the like Marx Brothers. <laughs> they would be much more compelling. There you go. Uh, so Pete, um, he you know he tracks down Betty in Philadelphia. Peter Parker needs to make an excuse of why he's going to Philadelphia, and he just tells Aunt May that he wants to take a weekend trip to Philly, and. It's a really weird out of character moment that Aunt May, who's terrified of Peter Parker, like strolling down the sidewalk because he's so frail, is fine with her teenage nephew just taking a, a weekend trip to Philly. Yeah, it's kind of like she's she's too busy <laughs> to take note. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which yeah, is yeah. a nice change of pace because she has been. Yeah, so she dotes on him and worries about him so so frequently. Um, but so Peter takes this trip to Philadelphia. He tracks down Betty Brant. She explains really without any pretense exactly what is happening. And um, I think in response to this, Peter Parker resolves to tell Betty his secret identity. He's mm-hmm. he's pretty much resolved basically once they've, he's gotten her out of this situation to tell her that he is, in fact, Spider-Man. So Spidey finds the boat where the criminals and the Brants are hiding out after this point. Uh, Betty mm-hmm. and her brother Bennett are basically held captive, you know, more or less. Um, again, like her brother's blackmailed and in all sorts of debt to these gangsters. He can't escape it. So they're all out on a, a nice old mobster boat. And uh, Spidey, when he finds them and swings to this boat, he lands on a rope and badly sprains his ankle, uh, which is, I think, kind of a recurring trope for Spider-Man, like to yeah. to make the fights fair. You know, they, they'll do all sorts of little, like, injuries. But I always... I always find it kind of shocking that it's so clumsy, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. He either gets hurt or, you know, he has the flu or he's having a sneeze attack or whatever. Yeah, right, right. Because he can't, you know, obviously he could take on these mobsters, no problem. And we've yeah. already seen him fight Dr. Octopus uh, at full strength. And, and obviously it was hard even then. So uh, he's on this boat. He's fighting mobsters. He's uncovered. Basically, a battle ensues. Um, Blackie tries to shoot Spider-Man when he 
interrupts the gang proceedings, and he hits Bennett Brandt uh, instead in the struggle. And an angry Spidey shakes off the guns to basically go and, and punch out Blackie um, because he's seen Betty's brother shot. There's a really cool shot here of Spider-Man being furious and trying to trying to get to Blackie, the mobster who shot him. And there's two of his two of his enforcers are hanging off of Spider-Man. And he's just walking, like charging towards him with two guys dangling off of him. Yeah. Un- undeterred with two full grown men <laughs> dragging behind him. Yeah, it's a really nice, true, angry Spidey scene because, again, like his his girlfriend, who he's in love with, you know, her brother's just been shot by this guy, and and is not going to survive. You know, let's be clear about that. Yeah, yeah, and, but unfortunately, this is followed up by nine pages of action. Uh, that uh, so Steve Ditko this year, mm-hmm. um, a little last year and this year, really kind of shows off his stuff that he just like. He's really good at drawing Spider-Man in motion. Yeah. I think that's what he really excels at. He really sells Spider-Man zipping around town and the big sw- arcs of his swings and the way he uses his webbing. Fight scenes, I'm a little bit more hot and cold on. There's nine pages of it here. And at, at one point, like, they're just chasing each other around, like, chasing Doc Ock around. Yeah. Spider-Man says, it's like being on a merry-go-round. I've got to find a way to beat him. I like was immediately thinking the same thing. Like, yeah, like you you do. This is really dragging on. Like, <laughs> it was dragging on for him, and it was dragging on for me. Yeah, right. It's. I think. I think there's two things of note there. One is, you know, we always. It's always Dicko and Kirby that get brought up as the primary artists of this period, and Kirby's problem. I don't think his greatest strength necessarily, but like one of his greatest strengths is action. Like, he's just very good at dynamic fight scenes. And I think, like, we saw in the Fantastic Four first Hulk issue, like, he finds inventive mm-hmm. uses of of making it compelling, even though how, how many superhero fight scenes have we read already, you know? Like, he finds new ways. I think he's good at those individual fights. But sometimes I he falls apart a little bit for me with team fights, which is a lot of what he's doing right now. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't, it often doesn't feel like a team fight it feels like just five different fights going on all at once it's an individual showcase kind of thing yeah yeah right and you know that like that's why i think the avengers is not that compelling for me at the moment so again we have this long dr octopus for spider-man fight on a boat basically it ends with uh the getaway boat crashes and both doc ock and spidey fall into the water um again they're out over the the bay here and uh and they both you know get away as a result, Betty blames Spider-Man for her brother's death. Unfairly or not, it it gives Peter reason not to tell her, of course, that he right. is Spider-Man. And it kind of creates this drama and tension point that, you know, he can never reveal his secret identity now because she hates Spider-Man and blames him for her brother dying. And we'll talk about this a little about uh, in the next issues. But Betty Brandt does pretty quickly come around to say, like, Oh, it wasn't actually Spider-Man's fault. She's not delusional about it. She just, she kind of views him as dangerous and a reminder of her brother's death. And that's more the reason why she, she can't stand being around him because he's this reminder of what happened to her brother, which is, which is nice. It brings a little nuance and a little bit less of her just being, I don't know, t- totally unreasonable. Like, it's kind of understandable. Yeah, like. yeah, totally. The, the final thing I'll call out with Spider-Man 11 just is that they include the 
the backup letters in the spider's web letter mm-hmm. column here. And these are really fun if you are invested in Amazing Spider-Man during this time or just, you know, the growth of Marvel. Um, seeing fan letters from readers who were actually picking these up in, you know, in 1964, like <laughs> listing their full name and full address in the back of <laughs> right. these comics yeah. every time. Uh, it's pretty wild and they're fun to read if you have the time. I, one highlight for me is there's a guy named Joseph Shea who writes in from New York and his first sentence is, Dear Stan and Steve, The Amazing Spider-Man number eight was certainly a change. And then in parentheses, for the worse. <laughs> like, it, it's really a nice look at early fandom. There's a lot of uh, love in the action in these early issues, but why so much romance? Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, totally. Um, it's also kind of, it's fun to see, like, the special announcement section mm-hmm. where Stan and, and the staff and probably, like, Flo Steinberg probably doing a lot of this. Um writing like all the other comics that are going on and it's you know yeah. you can keep up with the entirety of the marvel universe in seven paragraphs or whatever yeah. you know like yeah. like it's so neatly defined at this point so highly recommended to check those out uh again for those of you that are interested so uh next we did amazing spider-man number 14 this is the introduction of the green goblin yeah who i i would say i think there's a little bit of debate whether or not green goblin or dr octopus are re- is really spider-man's nemesis you know like main arch villain but yeah it seems like a good poll question because i i go back and forth on that one as well certainly growing up i would have said green goblin seemed like his arch nemesis maybe that's the same sam raimi movie inspired to a degree just Mm -hmm. because he's the first villain in the first movie he definitely cements his his role (laughs) as 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 doing worse stuff to spider-man at some point but yes definitely but we'll get to that so there's a there's an opening splash page of the Green Goblin, and he kind of looks like uh, a Green Goblin. He's got this, uh, you know, he, he looks like a little green elf. The the opening splash page makes him look really insane, which is fun. But the opening of the comic does immediately establish that it's not actually a big Green Goblin; that it's a it's a shadowy figure uh, in a laboratory, and the mask is like hanging up in the foreground, and it, this man is working on a flying broom. Uh, the scene cuts to the Enforcers, who I think have been in some Spider-Man before. This, this is not the introduction of them. But they're these three, like, gangland Enforcers, I guess. Fancy Dan, Ox, and Montana. Let's see. Fancy Dan is this short guy who's a martial arts expert. Ox is just a big, brooding muscle man. And Montana is really good at lassoing people with a length of rope. That's their their specialties. I do appreciate that to show that Ox is strong, he's literally just hanging around ripping a phone book in half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of phone books get ripped up in early Marvel comics. You remember when the thing tore up General Ross's like favorite set of phone books? Yeah. So these these three enforcers are just hanging out and the Green Goblin bursts in and propositions them with some work and they, you know, kind of make fun of him for <laughs> looking silly or you know, they say they don't want to work with him. And then the Green Goblin just shoots a bunch of sparks out of his finger. And they all immediately, <laughs> that's all. He doesn't do anything else. He just, sparks go flying. And they're like, whoa, whoa, all right, we didn't know you were serious. Yeah, they're pretty uh, easily persuaded here. Yeah. The Green Goblin and the Enforcers are, are plotting something. Um, the Green Goblin flies through the window of this Hollywood producer who's trying to plot out his next sequel. And they're kind of making fun of the the never-ending litany of trash monster movies being produced in hollywood the green goblin puts this i puts forth this idea of making a movie using spider-man the green goblin and the enforcers 
that they will all act in a movie. The Green Goblin then just flies around town until Spider-Man accosts him, which is kind of a funny idea, right? Like, he's just flying around until Spider-Man sees him and then leaps on his back, like, hey, what are you doing? Which is, like, that happens quite a few times where they just... He's not an established villain. Spider-Man doesn't know anything about him. He just you know, feels the need to, to leap on their back. Well, and the goblin's basically like, I knew if I flew around long enough, he would get your attention. Right. <laughs> it's like, I don't think he's even causing any damage at this point. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's kind of like that one scene where Spider-Man breaks up a bank robbery that hasn't happened yet. And they call the cops on him. Still, right. Such a good moment. Um, so the Green Goblin tells Spider-Man he's got a movie deal for him uh, and tells him that he'll make like a ton of money. Uh, and he flies off. Spider-Man, Peter Parker, realizes that, you know, he could solve all their his and Aunt May's money problems with this money. Coincidentally, when he goes to work, J. Jonah Jameson says that there's a big Hollywood movie being shot with Spider-Man, and he needs to send Peter Parker to cover the movie shoot. Uh, Betty Brant is upset that about a couple things. <laughs> She's upset that Peter Parker is going to go to Hollywood and, I don't know, be fawned over by a bunch of blonde starlets. Uh, she's also upset that she saw him walking Liz Allen home at some point, <laughs> which must have happened in a previous issue. Uh, it's a little stalkerish. You do get, I think, with the Liz Allen point, there's, I appreciate in this issue, you start to get Peter, um, he starts to gain a little popularity at school. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it's like his confidence, and like he's still, he's still picked on by the jocks, but his confidence as Spider-Man is starting to eke through into his like high school persona, where yeah, yeah. Liz Allen is is pretty clearly into him and keeps insulting Flash on Peter's behalf. Yeah. Anyway, Spider-Man and Peter Parker, they go to Hollywood and <laughs> at the movie shoot in the desert, uh, the enforcers start to fight him and he realizes that, hey, this is for real. It's kind of a fun fight. I don't know. The enforcers are they are around for a while, but they're not that interesting to me. I mean, one just punches fast and one punches hard and the other one has a rope they're pretty stock henchmen i except with with names i mean i think the version yeah. of them i've liked the most is the animated spectacular spider-man does a really nice job with them hmm. but okay. in the comics i don't need the yeah. enforcers i like uh, at one point montana montana wraps his lasso around spider-man and he says quote the one thing he didn't count on is my power of chest expansion as <laughs> he bursts out of the ropes. Nobody counts yeah, on that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean, literally no one counts on that. Uh, they continue to fight. The Green Goblin joins in as they move into this cave structure. Green Goblin is firing bombs of all sorts around. Smoke bombs and actual bombs. The Hulk is sleeping in this cave. Kind of out of nowhere. Like, they just establish, oh, the Hulk's here. And <laughs> bursts in. Spider-Man tries to fight and subdue him, but he can't because he's not strong enough, which we've seen in other issues. Uh, Spider-Man pretends to be, like, on the ropes and just dodges Hulk's blows enough so that (laughs) the Hulk, like, takes a swing and breaks a boulder that's blocking the entrance, freeing them all. And then they just leave and the Hulk uh, stays in his cave, I guess. He doesn't become... (laughs) They never subdue him. He just kind of stops showing up. It's a weird plot turn, frankly, and I, I appreciate... A couple things here. One, Spider-Man's punches do nothing against the Hulk. Like, yeah. He yeah. is tr- he is Spider-Man. He is not sick here, and he does nothing. And that's kind of interesting, um, I think, as far as like how their power sets are developed. But I also would call out here, this is a really weird introduction for the Green Goblin. 
This is not yeah. the Goblin we'll think yeah. of. Like you mentioned, we get the origin of him in the lab and kind of the mystery of his secret identity, which will yeah, that that gets played up a lot. Like yeah, that, like his mystery, his identity is a big mystery. But that's the that's the most interesting thing about him here by far, because otherwise, like this is a corny recycled you know Hollywood movie plot that we've seen like in Fantastic Four. Namor, Namor did the same thing, and it was just as weird then, too. Exactly, right. As Green Goblin origins go, it's really not so great. Um, I mean, the whole thing basically ends with the, the Hollywood movie producer. You know, Spidey goes to collect his check, and the Hollywood movie producer is basically like, no, we're not interested in Spider-Man movies anymore. We're interested in Hulk movies now, you know, right. because <laughs> somehow they – I don't know where these cameras are or where these this film crew is, but they saw the Hulk in the cave, I guess. Yeah. Um, sure. So basically, Spider-Man gets – he gets beat up for nothing, and his movie is is no longer in production after. And this he takes point. he takes a bus back from New York City to save money on bus fare, so that the whole trip isn't a complete wash. Yeah, totally. So it's a weird Green Goblin introduction. Again, it's important because hey, it's the origin of the Green Goblin, and he's going to be super important. But uh, I mean, Green Goblin won't come into his own. I'm going to say for like another fifteen plus issues. So next up after this, we did Avengers number eight. Yeah, so Avengers eight is a story by Stanley. Jack Kirby with Dick Ayers and Sam Rosen. And it begins with the Pentagon gets the Avengers on the horn to show them the arrival of King the Conqueror's spaceship. So it appears, at least initially, like a classic aliens have landed type story. And what we see, our first uh, our first images of King, he casually uses advanced science on basically the military and the Avengers to pretty much make fools of them. Um, the Avengers can, can I point out a, a detail about this? Yeah, yeah. At the beginning, the Avengers are sitting in their mansion getting a, a broadcast from the Pentagon telling them about King the Conqueror. And before before the broadcast comes in over the closed circuit feed, Captain America asks Thor, did you make sure to activate the scramblers on the closed circuit feed to make sure, you know, whatever, that no one's listening in or whatever, that the, mm-hmm. the feed is secure? It, that little detail, I mean, it's just a little thing, but kind of reminds me or points out why i think the avengers are not that interesting right now which is that like why is thor like norse god of thunder in charge of activating scramblers on a closed circuit feed? right they're also like interchangeable in their duties and personalities yeah that like their individual nature is just kind of a wash in this right they're just a team of superheroes with different powers but that's that's about it you know and just having like I mean, even the fact that Captain America just woke up from being in the ice for 20 years and he's already, you know, talking about the uh, the the tech that they're using and that Thor's involved with it rather than Iron Man, which would make yeah. a little more sense. That, that kind of thing. And that runs throughout. Like, I feel like the only one who actually has much of a difference in personality right now is Janet. Oh, Janet. Just by because far. they characterize her as the woman, right? So, like. Right. But she also she's also the only one with a sense of humor. Right. She's actually yeah, she's pretty funny. Like yeah. I I think it it's not supposed to read necessarily as the I, I don't know if it's supposed to read as humorous, but she's cracking like, jokes, I think. I think it's pretty yeah. intentional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I guess so. I just think there there is a little hint of eh, I don't know. It's a little uncomfortable the fact that like her only source of humor is just that she's like drooling over men constantly yes but yeah. it, but it, it but it is funny <laughs> you know like and it works it yeah it almost like accidentally stumbles onto being progressive <laughs> you know that she is like well she has her own her own like i don't agenda is the wrong word but her own no no like, yeah exactly that she kind of has her own agenda and it is not just you know 
being completely loyal and true to oh my god i completely forgot ant-man's name hank uh, yeah no because she kind of yeah. she kind of pokes and prods at hank in a way that really i think works because he can be so stodgy right. and yeah. really this whole team and i think that's kind of your point is like this whole team's kind of stodgy yeah and i i think it's kind of a staple of like silver age and and frankly even golden age team comics where it's like Think of like the Justice League. It's like everyone takes a role on monitor duty. You know, right. it's like everyone, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's almost like a little mini office where they all have their little duties and their little tasks and like responsibilities they have to fulfill, even though it's like, no, you're Thor. <laughs> I, I would even be more interested in that if that was like, because at some point, at some point, the Avengers comic becomes half workplace drama, <laughs> right? They're, yeah. They're, there's a lot of issues that do talk about like, the meetings and the roster and the legality like it, it becomes almost meta in the way that like you oh i just read an entire comic that was just about filling up the roster for the avengers nothing happened except they just are like taking care of workplace business do you like watching. that stuff do you, do you like the issues where they're all like filling out the roster yeah sometimes i think those are fun and oftentimes it, it but it feels meta in the way that like oftentimes it's it feels like the writers are trying to clean up the comic series itself right Mm -hmm. like that happens when they're like oh we have 26 people in the avengers we need to come up with a story reason to trim it back down to six so you know they have a a little arc where the avengers are making decisions about who stays and who goes and i don't know my memory is that i think those are kind of fun because they're a little breath of fresh air from the just the big fights yeah but we'll we'll see again when we read them again yeah anyway so kang kang the conqueror he's this big I don't know, big purple guy with the kind of a BDSM helmet on. <laughs> he's he's kicking the Avengers' butts, and yeah. they honestly like they all pretty much more or less get humiliated. Um, we Kang because he is basically humiliated and frozen the Avengers in place. Um, we learn his origin. He tells them he was born in the year three thousand, and this is where things get real timey wimey real fast. Uh, yep. He was, as he explains, Ramatut. In Fantastic Four number nineteen, who we've seen before, Doctor Doom in Fantastic Four Annual number two, which we've also talked about this year, Um, and basically he then went to the future and uh, and conquered. This was you know as was his destiny. Um, In the year three thousand, they kind of show the the Earth as like a real desolate kind of tribal. The year three thousand is a like technocratic utopia. Oh, where he's from. Guns are gone. There's no there's no weapons. Yeah, he's from 3000. When he was after the Fantastic Four, when he was Ramatut, he went to go back to 3000, overshot it by a thousand years, That's and ended up in the year 4000, which is like this Mad Max. Do you know Numenera, that like RPG mm. setting? No. It's, it's like a, you know, a tabletop RPG setting where the world has like been built up and destroyed like seven times or something. And so that technology is so advanced it's indistinguishable from magic Mm. and that's kind of what happens here it's like mad max if they had this tech that they so little understand this weaponry that it is basically magical to them yes which is it i I think that's an interesting view these two different views of the future because stanley leans into that like totally peaceful prosperous future a couple different times here um like the tomorrow man is from 20 2600 and it's a perfectly peaceful utopia Mm -hmm. but then this is the first time we've seen any hint that there's also a future that becomes this you know dystopian hellscape you know i always think of kirby's futures as being a little more 
maybe not always, but dystopian potentially. I think of like Commandi, mm-hmm. the the last boy that he would do for for DC later, where that is, you know, again, it's like all po- post nuclear holocaust. You know, a mm-hmm. little more like what if things went wrong? Yeah, it's almost been surprising that that is not. This is like the fourth time we've seen the future, and it's the first time they've shown a dystopia rather than a utopia. Yeah, which is just interesting given <laughs> that they were living through a very scary, like tense time when it came to uh, you know, nuclear threats rising. Yeah, that's an interesting call out. So the Avengers battle King again, he imprisons all of them. Uh, Sans the wasp who escapes in his ship. King is inactive long enough that the UN votes to, uh, to unite against him. So like King's really taking his time here in the conquering in a way that is, is just really quite plot convenient. Um, again, like for the, for the UN to have fully time to assemble and decide that he is a, a threat it means he's yep. really just lounging about very um, efficient so essentially what we have here we have the wasp is on her own and then she teams up with rick jones and the team brigade and they basically trojan horse kang they come to him and tell him we've seen you you're too strong there's nothing we can do to stop you you know why don't we help you out and kang believes them thinks they're smart young men he lets them <laughs> onto the ship they free thor and the avengers um and they and basically in freeing iron man we find out that his heart is hurting so Iron Man's got a, a real sore heart <laughs> during all of this. <laughs> and Jan, uh, she frees Hank. and Or excuse me, she finds him. During all this, she's thinking, like, what's the weapon we can use to stop Kang? Yeah. And she finds an acid gun that I think Hank had developed. And she flies it back to Hank to use to fire on Kang. And it basically ruins his suit. It melts all of his circuitry and components so he can't continue to use his technology in such a dominant way. So the battle from here really escalates, um, like pretty pretty crazily. King mm-hmm. tries to uh, radioactively kill everyone. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, you know he's no bones about it. Just wants them dead. Um, Thor absorbs all the radiation because whatever Norse god, <laughs> right? Yeah, hammer, sure. Um, and basically from there, uh, the Avengers are essentially able to stop King. And I think he escapes here. I don't know if it's back to back the future. Back to the time stream. Back I to think. the time stream, sure. So we'll, we'll obviously see him again. But that is the origin of King the Conqueror, who has been, I would say, a pretty good Avengers villain um, throughout time. And he's a little different than your typical alien here, where he's bringing in the full the full crazy insanity of Marvel time travel. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I've heard anything past here. Of him or Ramatut or whatever other incarnations he takes. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested to see where, where this goes. Next, we did Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1, which, pretty big issue. <laughs> Real big issue, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're going to try to move through this pretty quick, but it, it's pretty fun. Let's see, it first shows that Dr. Octopus is back in prison, which we just showed him, I guess, didn't we just show him getting out of prison and then escaping in that last one and we sure did there must be an issue in between here another i think there's another doc Ock appearance in between these or i just win a no prize for that um yeah okay so it anyway uh doc Ock is back in prison somehow we think we missed it in an issue but he it shows that he can now control all of his metal arms mentally even from a distance they removed him they removed his arms from him but he still has control over them he uses them to come to his prison cell and break him out. <laughs> There's a, Doc Ock, they don't quite know how to draw him at this point, Steve Ditko, because he simultaneously is kind of pudgy and he's got these big jowls, 
But he also has a six-pack at one point when they show him not having a shirt on. Like, they're not sure if they decide, like, decide that he is physically fit or kind of dumpy. Wait till you see 90s Ock with a full beer belly and the biggest arms this side of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's kind of that's kind of what I feel like they're doing here. Yeah, I like him kind of being not that physically capable, right? Like, he just uses mm-hmm. his arms in his mind, but he doesn't need... Otherwise, he's a little flabby. There's a scene here of Spider-Man dropping in on J. Jonah Jameson just to, like, tease him about... I don't even know about what. This is a reoccurring thing. But just, like, him basically, like, making fun of him that he's still free and successful and, like, that people are starting to like him. Which is... It's a fun reoccurring bit of just Spider-Man starting to lean into teasing J. Jonah Jameson and infuriating. Like, he often drops by and, like, will web him to his chair, like, pull pranks on him. Which is a nice... It's a nice change of pace, I think, given given how much he could and maybe should hate Jonah <laughs> for right, all the yeah. hostility towards him. He turns yeah, yeah, it the... into a prank war where he's like, if this guy's going to hate me, I might as well, I might as well earn some of this, but in a fun yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Thor and Dr. Strange are both spotted by Spider-Man in some like real clear cross promotion. Like every time we have a little cameo here, there's always a little word bubble that says, check them out in their own series, turn you into mystery, whatever. Before the plot gets going, this annual is cameo central. And yeah, we oh, get... Oh, even when the plot gets going. Like, I'm <laughs> going to point out each one of these. Yeah, okay. Uh, we get a little recap of, of Spider-Man's origins again. Uh, while Spider-Man's up on a roof, he just stumbles and trips while he's up on a roof and falls off the roof. And he's kind of powerless to stop himself from falling. Like, his powers are gone. Mm-hmm. And I think he's out of web fluid. So he falls and, like, grabs onto a flagpole and is clinging to it, which is pretty funny, the way that they he's been drawn here. And his reaction to losing his powers is kind of interesting because he's basically like, well, I guess I'm done then. Like, it's... Right, yeah, he immediately just throws in the, throws in well, the towel. Well, throwing in the towel so much as, like, he does, how would he know? Like, he just got these, again, like, we're two years into publication time. You know, and he's like, yeah. maybe maybe that was the extent of the spider bite. They might actually be sure. He wouldn't he wouldn't necessarily have any reason to expect them to come back. Yeah, that's that's a good point. He just he thinks he worked it out of his system. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, while he's dangling to a flagpole, the Fantastic Four fly by and are like, oh, should we help him? And I think it's either Johnny or the thing is just like, nah, he's he's just doing it for attention or something. Just showing off, yeah, yeah, make fun of him. We have a scene here where. The Sinister Six is convened, which is six supervillains. I'll list them here. It is Dr. Octopus, the Vulture, Craven the Hunter, Mysterio, Sandman, and Electro. Uh, we've covered some of them on My Marvelous Year. The ones that we haven't covered on this show, I've covered on Extra Issues. But um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll glance over their powers as, as they come up. I would say the only, probably the biggest Spidey villain that's missing is the Green Goblin, who is very new mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. I would also call out extremely green roster, even without the Goblin. They all have green costumes, except for Craven, yeah. who wears yeah. a lion vest. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Um, they basically get together and say, like, we've, we've fought Spider-Man individually, and we haven't been able to defeat him. But I've got a plan. I think Dr. Octopus is the mastermind of this. He says, like, I, I have a plan. We'll each fight him. In turn, and it's totally absurd. It's totally ridiculous. Like, they decide that it, separately they can't fight him, so they're going to fight him separately one after the other instead of, like, like taking turns is their grand plan. And Ox thinking is, is we'll weaken him. 
turn by turn. And he, I guess re- really he's using the rest of the crew to be like, well, I'm going to go last. So you'll weaken him up for me. But I <laughs> right. props to the vulture here for saying we must all attack at once, <laughs> which which clearly would have been the better plan. Right. Yeah. Uh, so Peter Parker is, meanwhile, considering what his life would be like without Spider-Man, <laughs> another cameo from Giant Man in the Wasp. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he he kind of comes to terms with not being Spider-Man and realizes that like his life would be a lot less complicated and he could be a kid and he probably could get a job and pay help Aunt May with the finances, etc. But Sandman kidnaps Betty Brant and Aunt May and Spider-Man, you know, realizes, or Peter Parker, not (laughs) Spider-Man, realizes he needs to go rescue them, powers or no. It's a really funny through line here of, so Spider-Man is going to go through and basically fight all these villains like he's Mega Man fighting like (laughs) one end boss at a time. While Dr. Octopus has Aunt May and Betty Brant over for tea like he has them kidnapped but aunt may is totally oblivious to the fact that she's kidnapped she thinks that she's been invited into doc ock's home and and she instantly falls for him in such a delightful way she's really charmed by him yeah oh it's so funny she she says we mustn't be prejudiced against the poor man just because he seems to have some trouble with his arms <laughs> it's bizarre uh, and hard to understand but it's so fun that it just totally overrides the fact that like Amway's falling for a clearly known fugitive. <laughs> right, yeah, it's very... Well, also, just, like, she hates Spider-Man and thinks he's a menace, mm-hmm. but but Dr. Octopus just has nice manners, yeah. and it immediately wins her over. Anyway, so Spider-Man first goes to a power plant. I can't, I can't remember exactly. He get, he gets a hint that, that that's where he needs to go to find Electro, uh, who's charging up. He's just basically a guy who can... He has electric electricity powers. He can charge up like a battery and expel the electricity. So he's at a power plant. <laughs> he tells Spider-Man that if he wants to find Aunt May and Betty Brant, uh, he has a a card on his person that will show him where to go next, like an Easter egg hunt. Oh, why did they kidnap Aunt May and Betty Brant? So I believe I believe Ock because he knows Betty Brant had some connection. Oh, right, to Spider-Man. Because he knows he and, oh, turned Aunt, up before. Aunt May was just accidental. Right? They were just, they, just, they had just met up, uh, yeah, basically coincidentally, both looking for Peter. Okay. And uh, and Electro and Sandman <laughs> drove up to the Bugle to get him. Yeah. yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay, so anyway, he's at this power pant trying to fight Electro. Uh, <laughs> as soon as Electro starts, like, throwing thunderbolts at him, Peter Parker, his, his bravery disappears immediately. <laughs> <laughs> because he doesn't think he has any powers mm-hmm. he just yells no no don't stop <laughs> and then he realizes that he can bound out of the way and uh his his spider powers are back and <laughs> it's not quite the um even if i don't have my powers i have to be the hero that you kind of expect like no he shows up and then immediately starts like yelling out cowardly yeah yep uh but he realizes that his powers are gone and it was just psychosomatic and one thing i will call out all of these fights, so as Spidey goes through the Sinister Six one by one, they all feature one splash page drawn oh, by Steve yeah. Dicko. And this is, you know, when you talked about Dicko shining when he gets to do action, and these big splash yeah. pages are outstanding. They're some of my favorite art yeah, uh, they're from great. this year. And they're just like, like every one of these, you'd be like, yeah, that's a poster. I'd put that on my wall, you know. Oh, yeah, they're cool. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, it's funny, though. I, I was writing on the Slack channel while I was reading this because those six pages are so good and so mm-hmm. fleshed out 
that you kind of feel like Steve Ditko had to rush through the rest of this very long comic mm. because the background characters and all the fa- all the faces of the background characters are so silly and literally like two dots and a, a line for the the entirety of someone's facial features that they, they kind of look skimped on. Like he had to hurry to get to these <laughs> to hit the deadline. Yeah, which which might be true, which might totally be true as uh, as the backup here indicates. Yeah, uh, there's that shot of the vulture that I turned into my Slack profile picture that I think is just hilarious. Yeah, we haven't ragged on backgrounds too much, uh, yeah. you know, because it's it's such a stable crew artist. But here they're, you know, they're frequently very not good. And that's something to notice. Yeah. And Jack Kirby, I mean, Jack Kirby in contrast, like his backgrounds are usually just as fleshed out as his foregrounds. Like that, mm-hmm. that's kind of one of his his powers is everything is just really, really well drawn. Anyway, yep. So Spider-Man like grounds himself in this fight and uh, basically knocks out Electro with one big punch. <laughs> he says, I he says something like he hears a funny sound like iron clanging along. And then Iron Man shows up, <laughs> which hopefully Iron Man doesn't make a sound like iron clanging as he walks. I, I mean, it does give the idea that, you know. He's this big metal costume that is just like dong, 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 dong like as he walks along. <laughs> it is kind of a funny reimagining of, of what we think of when we think of Iron Man. I so with all these cameos, I would say this is the most Marvel universe of anything we've read to date. It brings in, I think, literally every character they've created. It does. I'm going to keep pointing them out, but they all, I think, almost all of them feel completely artificial and completely just like. Oh, it's, it's just... Read, read this comic. Yeah, it, it's just promotion, but it's, you know, it's kind of... I, I won't even say it's fun, because <laughs> I don't... It doesn't really add anything, yeah. The, the only... Yeah, well, I'll get to the one that I think is okay. Anyway, so the next clue is to go to the park where he fights Craven the Hunter. Craven the Hunter is basically... He kind of has just Spider-Man's, like, strength and agility brought on by potions that he stole, <laughs> that he stole from, like, African witch doctors. And he uses a couple lions, I think, to <laughs> to corner. Sp- I think they're cheetahs, but yeah, cheetahs. Okay, yeah, to. and uh, and fight Spider Man. Fights kind of fun, but uh, what I like about these, there's six fights here. They're all pretty quick, and they all end with a really good splash page. So you get that big splash page again as he overpowers Craven the Hunter and his two cheetahs. Uh, and this is actually where he does realize that he lost his powers over his guilt for Uncle Ben. He was thinking about Uncle Ben and the guilt had a psychosomatic reaction and he mm. lost his powers yeah he gets his next clue basically snatches it out of craven's pants yeah. yep to go uh like in mid-fight and just kind of runs right yeah to go find mysterio he bursts into the place where he's supposed to find mysterio and the x-men are there and he starts fighting the x-men which another cameo why does he have to fight the x-men well it's actually mysterio manipulating things and causing an illusion to make it look like the x-men are attacking him he realizes that he realizes the ploy and bursts through like <laughs> some one-way glass and uh, knocks Mysterio out. Gets his next clue. Throughout this whole thing, J. Jonah Jameson is a. Uh, he I think he saw that Betty Brant and Aunt May had been kidnapped, and yeah. he's trying to like, dis- <laughs> despite himself, he's trying to warn Spider-Man and get him a message that he needs to go rescue them. Which is very funny. It keeps cutting back to him just being like nervous, pacing around his office about this. And there's this amazing scene where a spider, <laughs> a spider comes down his windowsill, like dang an actual spider. Yeah. An actual spider dangles down at his windowsill, and J. Jonas Jameson quietly is like, Sp- "Spider Man, did you <laughs> like, <So good. laughs> like he thinks that like did Spider Man send you? Do you have a message for me?" <laughs> like, and like the rest of his workers like see him talking to a spider on the windowsill. Yeah. 
It's very good. And they're talking to each other like, is Jonah is Jonah still talking to that spider? Like, should we, <laughs> should we be concerned? Yeah. Oh, it's good. Uh, so Spider-Man goes to his next fight, which is the Sandman. The Sandman traps him in an airtight box so that he can't escape him. At which point the Sandman suffocates because there's not enough air. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So he gets his next clue from like a passed out Sandman, um, which is the Vulture, which is up on a rooftop. He goes and fights the Vulture, overpowers him, and he gets Dr. Octopus's address. Dr. Octopus is in this big mansion, almost a castle. Spider-Man bursts in. They start fighting. They have this kind of brawl before Dr. Octopus opens a trap door that Spider-Man falls into. And he falls through the floor into a giant fish tank. Dr. Octopus puts on, like, scuba gear and says, I'm going to defeat you in a manner most befitting my name. I shall join you in that giant fishbowl and attack you just as a real octopus would. It's so great (laughs) and so weird and out of character. So, Oct goes from the world's most cordial kidnapper to (laughs) fully embracing being an octopus. Which is, like, doesn't make a oh lick of God, sense for so who he good. is but he does roll up his sleeves to reveal ox been working out in prison yeah right yeah he's looking good here so the, he jumps in and they are fighting in this underwater giant fishbowl uh spider-man's having a hard time until just like a sea cucumber he expels all of his like intestines i.e his web fluid <laughs> all over dr <laughs> octopus he just empties his web shooters into the tank so it's just this big sticky mass of <laughs> webbing that he can't see or uh, escape from. And he escapes from the fish the fish tank. <laughs> it bursts in to save Aunt May and Betty Brant. Aunt May thinks... <laughs> Aunt May is very upset with Spider-Man. And she says, I'm sure Dr. Octopus would never have entered that way without knocking. <laughs> like It could have been indecent. Right, yeah. Like, if you're going to rescue me, at least do it. Well, she doesn't even know she needs to be rescued. So No, right. He rescues the two of them, takes them out. He, he webs off and then comes back as Peter Parker. Uh, Peter Parker comes up to Aunt May and says, you're not all shook up, are you? And she gets upset because <laughs> uh, she scolds him for using that awful slang. <laughs> shook up. She mostly, sh- she gasps at some point and Peter Parker's like, oh no, she realized what's happened and she's she's traumatized. No, she's just upset that she miss- missed the Beverly Hillbillies on TV. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that, that's the full issue. It, it's pretty fun. It, it goes on for quite a while, but I, I don't know. It, it feels very it feels very contrived, like the, the entire situation, but it moves fast enough and the characters are fun enough that I really like this one. They also have a, uh, a little villain showcase at the end, pinups of each of the villains. And like Spider-Man just has such a good roster of villains. Basically, every villain shown at this point is kind of a household name, I'd say with the exception of the Living Brain and the Terrible Tinkerer, are the only two that I feel like are not, you know, that people just don't recognize automatically. Like, Well, they're all like, they're all like movie worthy, or in a lot of cases have been in movies. I think almost almost all of them have been in movies, except Craven. Craven's, Craven's do. There's still time. Okay, so, uh, that, yeah, that was the first annual. Pretty good. I do want to. I do want to talk about the backup just real quick. There's a three-page oh, sure. story at the very end of this called "How Stanley and Steve Ditko Create Spider-Man." Oh, right. And it's it's very it's very interesting. It's kind of a fun read, but it's also really interesting in hindsight because obviously there's been a lot of discussion about like creative credit for the creation of Spider-Man. So one right. thing I like to call out here is it's very clear it's it's shared co-creative credit, right? Mm-hmm. So I think right. like Lee gets. I think one his biggest probably criticism through time is he takes too much credit yeah. um, for creation of characters. And there's a lot of validity to that. 
But I will say, like, when they're writing these things, it's very clear they're working together when you read the comics themselves. Um, And Stan makes no bones about that. Lee is so self-effacing in his dialogue throughout this. It's very fun. He pokes fun at himself constantly in a very good-natured way. Um, it does make and a points point out that he's like tough to work with. <laughs> that he's tough to work with, yeah, and that Steve's working so hard that he wakes up in the middle of the night with an idea and like expects like Steve Ditko to, he's going to call Steve Ditko at three a.m. with a, a a new idea for a comic and expect him to get working. And it does feel like Stan's kind of like, oh, haha, you know what a ridiculous, you know, I'm up at midnight, and Steve's like. Probably, like, really actually mad. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, you don't get the sense that probably, from what we know now, that probably he was in on this joke at all. Um, It does make a point of saying that all the ideas are stands, which is probably the most upsetting piece if you're a, mm, a mm-hmm. Ditko fan or Ditko himself um, because Stan, you know, wakes up in the middle of the night and has all the plot ideas and then Steve, yeah. writes, you know, draws them all out. So, again, if you're interested in, like, the creative credit issues and just kind of seeing, like, how these guys work together, it's a fun three-page backup um, to talk about Stanley and Steve Ditko as, like, a, a creative partnership. Um, oh, there's a really good you – know, on YouTube, there's that guy, Comic Tropes, mm-hmm. who has a really fun channel, and he has an episode about Steve Ditko, Steve Ditko called, like, why Steve Ditko quit. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Talks about kind of Steve Ditko. Not not so much about Lee and Ditko's relationship and how they work together, though it does glance over that, but just Ditko's like philosophy as an artist um, and the kind of different views that that went through. And Yeah. Well, let's, let's get into that a little because that's actually all really good segue. I was going to say, actually, let's not get into that. I was just about to say, but we don't have to get into that now. because No, no, it's actually a good segue because in the next issue we're going to talk about, Amazing Spider-Man number 18, like this is a Ditko issue. And yeah, okay. you don't get many of those, but I was reading in, um, there's, there's a book probably we referenced before and we'll reference it again. It's called uh, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story. It's written by Sean Howe. It's a really good behind the scenes, um, kind of like historical uh, biography, essentially, of the publisher. And uh, it mentions that Amazing Spider-Man number 18 is basically the first issue that Ditko, because of some of his frustrations in working with Lee, got to yeah. essentially plot and and craft himself. And that's notable because issue 18 is, is very interesting because it has almost no action. It yeah, is yeah. all introspective. It is like all basically Spider-Man and personal dynamics, which is something that Ditko is particularly interested in and wanted more of. Whereas Lee thought, you know, the readers, the expectations, they need more action, right? So let's get into the issue. Creative credits here are Lee, Dicko, and Sam Rosen. But again, we know Dicko plotted this one. Um, it follows Amazing Spider-Man number 17, where Spider-Man appeared to run away from the Green Goblin. So you get reactions across the Marvel Universe of and everyone he ran, hearing He ran away news. because he heard news that Aunt May was sick, I think had like succumbed to some illness and he needed to run to her so he basically turned tail and ran away from the green goblin not out of cowardice but because he needed to get dan met yeah we know right we know he wasn't actually being a coward but obviously everyone in the marvel universe is kind of like well maybe he isn't the hero we thought he was or maybe he is a big weakling um the the reaction i would call out first and <laughs> most notably is the avengers talking about it janet van dyne's reaction <sighs> yep, is that's what i was gonna say insane <laughs> she says Wasps and spiders are natural enemies, so I can't honestly say I'm sorry for him. Yeah, <laughs> she has such a good sneer on her face, too. Heroes and villains here absorbing the properties of the animal that they're named after <laughs> is so bizarre. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, Pete has been taking care of Aunt May, as you said. She's very, very sick right now. 
you get a good glimpse kind of as this is happening of of spider fan flash thompson so as everyone's kind of ragging on spidey for bailing during this battle so publicly flash thompson defends him to his last breath right he will not let I go i love i love this dynamic because like flash thompson just hates peter parker total rivals but then he is the biggest undying spider-man fan and we'll just he is the only person on spider-man's side right now it's very funny it's very funny it's very smart as well to give to make flash more interesting as opposed to yeah, just stop yeah sure. um so as you know basically again spider-man he's he's on ant made duty and he sees a crime he doesn't intervene he calls the police <laughs> which is like kind of funny to see a superhero do but it's also like that's actually it's actually fairly sensible if you're not going to yeah. stop it yourself. Sure. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. he's trying to make some money because they got to pay for all Aunt May's medical bills. And um, there's, a again, a sensible attempt at selling his webbing formula. So he goes yeah. to like a group of inventors and he tries to sell what is his and, and his intellectual property. But the science turn him down because the webbing dissolves after an hour or two, which to me feels like a real short-sighted I, um, rationale on the science yeah, part. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Like, it probably could have taken it and then solved for that. But yeah, yeah. anyway, as Spider-Man is failing to make some money, he bumps into the Sandman for the requisite Lee action scene, essentially. Right. Um, so you get, like, Sandman throwing some punches at Spidey, but Peter runs away. Again, right, like, he yeah. is literally running from battles here in very sort of anti-heroic fashion. Oh, I want to point out, J. Jonah Jameson is over the moon mm. that, like, he has been proved correct about Spider-Man, that he's really a coward and he's no hero. And there's this very funny shot of J. Jonah Jameson with this enormous smile plastered on his face, like this big, creepy smile. Yeah. <laughs> it being satisfied. And it's funny because the rest of uh, the Daily Bugle doesn't know how to react to J. Jonah Jameson smiling. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're not used to him being happy. There's even a quote here. First time I ever saw him smile. What a sickening sight. <laughs> <laughs> There's some good Jonah humor here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so it, it, following that, it establishes that because um, Johnny, the Johnny Storm, Human Torch, is like, I need to get to the bottom of this. You know, he's got a relationship with Spidey. It reestablishes that their meetup spot is the Statue of Liberty. Right. This is, you know, if Torch writes in the sky, meet me at the usual spot. That's going to be the yeah. Statue of Liberty. And he tries to meet Peter and help him. And kind of try to get to the bottom of it. And in pretty typical fashion, Spidey brushes them off. You know, they they have this weird dynamic of trying to help each other and being friendly, but then always being the rudest at the worst times, basically. Yeah, yeah, and right, right. That's essentially what Peter does here. Is again, like he you know slaps away a helping hand. Well, he's he's. I don't know if we pointed out exactly. I mean, he ran away from the Green Goblin, but he also he's so worried about Aunt May. She needs. She needs to recover from the surgery she just had. And he's so worried about her that he doesn't want to get basically see any action because if something happens to him, Aunt May is completely helpless. Yeah. Right. So like right now he's basically Spider-Man, but not really because he's not fighting anymore. He's not doing anything Spider-Man-ish because yeah. he doesn't want to put himself in any actual danger. It's odd he even puts on the costume, frankly. Um, I guess he does so to like sell his weapon or stuff like that just to protect yeah. his identity. Yeah. But so while all this is happening, Flash Thompson puts on a Spider-Man costume to prove that Spidey's no coward. Right. So he, you know, he takes it upon himself to represent the Spider-Man mythology. And uh, and he put as he's doing this, Liz Allen runs to the Parker's house to warn Pete. And which is kind of odd. But basically she goes to say, you know, Flash is going to go get himself hurt. you got to help him, which is, again, like 
this is Peter Parker's public enemy number one, certainly at high school. Um, he's a weird guy to go to for this. To be honest, there are three high schoolers in Peter Parker's high school. Right? Yeah, there's Peter right. Parker, there's Liz Allen, there's Flash Thompson. Yeah, right. Those are the three characters. Well, there's also Moose, but we haven't seen much of him. We haven't seen Moose in a while. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Moose is due um, for a comeback. So, so, you know, Liz, so Pete's got this on his mind. He's got romance issues going on. Betty's mad thinking he took Liz on a date. So Betty goes out on a date of her own to get back at Peter Parker. Betty Brant is having like, she's just stressed about a lot of stuff throughout this issue but the way steve dicko draws her looks like she's always on the verge of a mental breakdown right she always is so wild-eyed and like full of terror over if peter parker is going to call or not or if he's on a date with liz allen like the 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 facial expressions are a little overblown for what is actually happening yeah she's got a she's got a tough uh tough tough few years here yeah Um, so again as this is going on flash goes out he tries to stop some criminals he gets the stuff and beat out of him you know, tough high school football player apparently can't take on several armed individuals. But, you know, the police rush to the scene and they they prevent him from getting seriously damaged. Peter yeah. is like hiding behind a wall watching. He's like on his way to help. But yeah. the police get there first. So a lot of this is kind of like, man, maybe if Spider-Man didn't do anything, the police would solve most of the problems. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. There's kind of that, that angle. Um, Aunt May does get better eventually. And Peter realizes that, you know, through through the inspiration of Aunt May recovering, only a weakling quits when the going gets tough, which is right. a important yeah. lesson here because, again, like he, he kind of quit on Spider-Man. But, you know, again, like he's in a tough spot. Yeah. And I mean, it, he quits a couple times, but this, this is, a, you know, a, for different reasons, though. And this is kind of an interesting one of that without him, Aunt May would be, I don't know, helpless. <laughs> I mean, it's a yeah. little fight. Like she is the adult but it also is like she has no idea what their finances are. <laughs> you know, her, right. her nephew takes care of all the finances, which is kind of funny. Yeah. And uh, it, it, But it does show that he worries too much. Like, she has friends. She does have other support besides him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically gets the message of he needs to live his own life and stop living for other people. Yeah. So, so again, like, the main reason we read this one is there's no villain of the week fighting. Yeah. It's really just moral resolve and the Spider-Man family. I, I really like this issue as yeah, a result. Yeah, I think it stands out. I think Ditko was onto something with, mm-hmm. you know, we can do an issue of the Spider-Man supporting characters and interpersonal dynamics and him battling the Sandman doesn't need to be a part of it. And it's a really fun issue if you like the Spider-Man characters, which at this point, I think we all do. It's like wholly unique in the Marvel comics at this time. Yeah, have these kind of issues, and I think that's what it makes it my favorite Marvel comic, right? Like this is what is the most interesting to me at the time. I mean, it's not necessarily that I just hate the action and I don't want to see it, but the fact that what's really interesting is the the characters and their dynamics and the 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 inner battles, right? That's definitely what's the most interesting, and that's what these are focused on. Yeah. Yeah. Some sometimes there was nine pages of like a boat fight that just drove me crazy earlier. <laughs> right, totally. So that's gonna do it for 1964's Marvel Comics. We will, of course, be coming back at it here with 1965 comics. You can reach out to us at mymarvelousyear at gmail.com if you have questions or just wanna let us know your thoughts. Uh, we would also appreciate it if anyone here uh, if you go to the iTunes 
or wherever you're listening and want to leave us a review, that's going to help us find more listeners for My Marvelous Year as the book club takes off here in uh, 2019. Yes, please. Um, you also can find us at patreon.com forward slash My Marvelous Year. There we've got a lot of really great backer benefits. Uh, besides helping the show, we'd like to get you... Um, We've got an extra show called Extra Issues, or I do, uh, where I cover, well, extra issues that we didn't get to cover on the main list, and a lot of those are uh, sometimes finding the little hidden gems of the year that don't make it onto the list, or villain or hero introductions that we just don't have time to get to. You also, there, that's how you get access to our Slack channel, which we're having a lot of really great conversation over there and discussion of these comics um, every day. And uh, access to our polls, which uh, this is the last week you can vote in the poll for 1964. That will be, we will be closing that on the 20th. So if you're listening to this on the day of release, you only have a couple days to vote. This week's poll is, what is the most dangerous science in the Marvel Universe? Magnets, rays, nuclear power, flames, uh, like Johnny Storm's flame, or glue or adhesives. So head over to patreon.com and you can vote on your pick there. Yeah, you can for next for next week's reading list or for 1965's reading list, you can go to mymarvelousyear.com. It'll take you to a page on Comic Book Herald, the site I run, where you can find all of the reading lists for every year, but again, we'll be moving to 1965. Otherwise, of course, we will be sharing them in the show notes as episodes are released via our Patreon exclusive email or if you're a member of the Comic Book Herald email club, We'll, again, we're trying to get these lists out in as many ways as possible, so whatever is easiest for you. A quick reminder that we're reading all these comics via Marvel Unlimited subscription service. That is the easiest and most cost-effective way to get at every single issue we're going to be reading. So two more things. If you want to get us any, uh, if you want to be on our listener response episode for 1964, you have about a day to do that. So get those get those thoughts into mymarvelousyear at gmail.com by the 19th. We'll record those and put those out on next week's episode. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is this will probably be up for a while by now, but this is the first time I'll get to mention it on the show. On the Slack channel, I'm starting a channel called the No Prize channel. And j- just as, as we listen to uh, our older episodes as we get ready to put them out, we're noticing some mistakes <laughs> that uh, that we've made just, you know, speaking about stuff. Hmm. Uh, we want to give you a place to just like Stan Lee... Uh, actually, can you explain the no prize real quick? I think you have a better grasp on it than I do. Yeah, so a Marvel no prize is something that sort of developed here in the early days of Mary Marvel fandom, where Lee and the editorial staff would, uh, basically readers would write in and find, you know, continuity errors or, for example, Stan writing Bob Banner instead of Bruce Banner. And essentially, if you could write in and explain why that error actually made sense, right? Do a little bit of fan fiction to sort of correct it for them. You could win a Marvel no prize. So they didn't actually necessarily have anything to give you. They weren't actually going to spend money on this. I mean, that was the joke, right? Like your no prizes is in the mail. Yeah, exactly. But it was just kind of a fun, silly way of congratulating and rewarding people with a metaphorical pat on the back. Yeah. So, I mean, you don't, you don't need to come up with your own fan fiction for why the like stupid mistakes that we probably may <laughs> make are like I, I'm pretty sure uh, 1962 I called Doctor Doom Otto Van Doom which so I'm sure someone will have pointed out by now um, 
you don't have to come up with a reason why that makes sense. But we just want to give you a place where we can amicably talk about our goofs and, uh, you know, you can point them out there so you don't feel uh, like you're just, you know, frustrated yelling at your steering wheel while you're driving listening to this. Yeah, there will be plenty of that, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, final note, thanks to Disasterpiece for our theme music. You can check out Disasterpiece on Bandcamp for more of their very, very fun soundtracks. That's right. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next year. See you next year. Bye.